Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the People Who Surf Show, and thank you for being here. I am Chris Morrow, your host, and I aim to make it worth your while. I've got a fun one for you today. My guest is Chris Malloy, a man who frankly defies labeling. He's been everything from pro surfer and documentary filmmaker to commercial director, artist, designer, marketing maven, and today rancher. Above all else, though, he's a husband, father, son, and still the older sibling to Keith and Dan Malloy, whose own journeys are intertwined. I actually nabbed the two of them for some extra color and context, which you'll hear along the way. Now, I met Chris more than 20 years ago on the North Shore of Oahu, which is where he was based then. Over the years, we've collaborated on a handful of projects, but I haven't seen him in several. Truth be told, he's been living what he calls a self-imposed exile on California's Central Coast, where he and his wife Carla and their three kids live on a sprawling ranch hidden in the empty rolling hills. As soon as I rolled up his mile-long windy driveway and arrived at his hilltop home, it all made perfect sense. I hope you enjoy this one. Chris Malloy, buddy. Welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thank you so much for coming up. I'm up on my little hill. Nobody comes around anymore, so I'm um, <laughs> I'm honored to have you up. We've known each other for a, for a long time, and I always looked up to you as a surfer and to you know be friends and know you all these years. It means a lot. So I'm 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 excited to bullshit with you. <laughs> oh, dude, I love it. This is you're in my heaven. You are living in my dream right now. That's what's. Uh, is your is your so is your dream getting up at five thirty in the morning and picking up cow shit and horse shit? <laughs> yeah, it, you know it's I got so room fun. for you. <laughs> I know this is a lot of work, but gosh, what a beautiful place to be! It's funny, uh, a friend of ours, Hans Hag, and I was I ran into him or two a week or two ago, and and he said he'd come up for a visit, and he was, and I asked him like, well, how's he doing? And he just goes, you know, it's so radical because. You're living, you're living this still this very frontier life in 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 California, <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is like, how is that possible? He's like, dude, he goes, he's got his ranch, and then he goes out on his boat to the Channel Islands, and then he goes down to you know you know Hollister, and I'm like, what a freaking asshole! I can't believe. <laughs> well, so first of all, I've never heard of, I've never um, heard of. The Channel Islands or Hollister. I don't know where. I don't know where you're talking, talking about. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Listen, it's not. It, you know, when you like, so you show up today. Yeah. Tidied up. I went out and checked cows in the morning. Got my stuff done. But and like, but on a daily basis, it's like, it's like, you know, ninety percent of the time, I'm cursing because I broke a water line or. Mm. Or I lost a cow the other day that took me. It's just you know, like there's. Was that from the heat or the heat wave, or was it just no? It was not because of the heat. It was it was a complication of a calf oh, pregnancy. Bummer. Anyway, so you, you know, you get to we get to sit here and it's like a you know nice day and we're just kind of hanging out. But like you know, it's a it's a it's a full full deal. It's you know? a grind. Yeah, it's you're a full working deal. Your Look, I, mean, I didn't I didn't surf hardly at all this summer. I've I had too much to do out here, so it's a commitment. But when you get your chores done 
and you get a fire lit and you crack a cold one, like, yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's a little bit of a time warp here, this little stretch of California in terms of like, okay, it's tra- is it somewhat reminiscent of what you grew up in in Ohio when Ohio was a little emptier? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm trying to replicate Ohio in 1974. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so, and we're, you know, so we're here in a place where, um, you know, the agrarian lifestyle is still strong and the, the, the people that are, have, have been so nice to us and taken us in as, as friends, they almost feel like family now. These people are unsung heroes to me. You know, they're producing food for the world. Um, and um, to, to be a little tiny part of that is just a, has been such a big honor. Yeah, and I mean, you, obviously, a big chunk of your life is getting up every day and going to work for your wife. Right? Like, yeah. Tell, oh, yeah. Tell, oh, yeah. Tell me about, oh, yeah. you know, she's cracking the whip on you. Tell me, <laughs> yeah. tell me about her business and, and sort of what you guys so, have, have gotten yourselves into up here. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're on um, 103 acres here and, and we're producing greens and eggs and um, uh, mutton and beef and pork. We are a very, very fledgling, very tiny little entity, and the, the the fact that in this town people really appreciate fresh food has been huge for us. And you know, I, I of course have to have my day job to pull it off. And I um, and my wife is incredibly diligent. And um, yeah, I you know she she knows what what time to plant and what to plant and what is in the soil. I don't, I, I just, I just get up and do what she tells me to do. So I work for her. So we, I, we, we're, we're such a humble little fledgling operation. Thankfully, you know, um, she loves to work with her hands and I like to, to work on a tractor. So I've got some, some good tractors that I inherited from my dad. And, 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 uh, so I get to like this, like today, she, you know, she said, I need these four rows done. So, you know, I can, um, that's... I can jump on a tractor and the tractor does all the work and I, I just watch it happen. And so, um, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, we, 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 we figure it out day by day. And, and, and believe me, there's days that we don't have it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny because in my dream world, right, where I romanticize what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, I, I see you just sort of meditating out in the field while you're plowing with your tractor and stuff. How far off is my vision of reality of w- what day-to-day is like, you know, for Chris Malloy? What's, what's the good? What's the bad? Yeah, it's, first of all, I'm never meditating out in the middle of a field on a tractor. That just isn't happening. Um, what? You're blowing my dream right now. <laughs> it's usually disaster-oriented. So if a water line breaks or if something gets out or a fence or whatever, like you, you think the day is going to be, I'm going to go feed and then I'm going to come and I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to do this. Right. And almost every day there's something that you, that you, that you just didn't expect. And like those things kind of, kind of suck because then you're like, okay, well, instead of doing what I plan to do today and get mm. forward progress on what we're trying to do, you go back four steps, you know, and, and, you know, my, my dad used to say, you know, if, you know, when I would complain because he, he's, <laughs> he would say, you know, um, you signed up for all this shit, first of all, so don't complain. Yeah. And if you if you're gonna do this, it's you know it's it's a thrill a minute. And, right. and if and if you don't like that, then move to town. You know. And so, so yeah. And and thank God, my my kids are at the age now where you know, uh, you know, my daughter's she's she's 11 years old and she drives an F350 around the ranch and can feed cattle. And with without them, you know, it would be it'd be a lot harder. But yeah. it's 
yeah, it's self-imposed. You know, I mean, I, we do it because we love it. You know, yeah. we do it because we love it. And 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 if we can get into the black, you know, like yeah, and you know, um, that would be a dream come true. Now, during my own days at Surfer Magazine, I wrote a lot of in-depth personality profiles. The process of digging into somebody's story was a continual reminder for me that at the core of our being were all the results of a million little decisions, many of which took place before we were even here. To understand Chris Malloy and what makes him tick, you have to understand his parents, Denise and Mike, and the huge challenges they faced as a young couple in their 20s raising children. Turns out their biggest challenge of all was their fourth child, Mary. Mary was born with a cleft palate, but that was just the beginning. She was quickly diagnosed as legally blind and deaf with a severe case of cerebral palsy. Doctors said she would require full-time care for the rest of her life. At the time, Chris was just 10, Keith was eight, and Dan was four. The Malloys were also told that they should have her institutionalized or risk wrecking their family. Denise and Mike politely told them to piss off and took their baby home. That was 38 years ago. To this day, Denise Malloy remains Mary's primary caregiver. It's been far from an easy task, especially when the boys were young and Mike would spend long days and weeks at work. Contrary to what the doctors said, however, Mary's presence made the family bond tighter. It infused each of the Malloys with a deep sense of compassion, gratitude, teamwork, and hard work. She really challenged us to to like stick together and like there I I you know I just owe my parents so much for like like going through all that you know it was every day was a challenge there was she had epilepsy as well so there was times where she almost like you know there'd be ambulances at the house and, wow. and that kind of stuff so it was challenging and it and it and it you know it makes you ready for the world like yeah if you think this is tough right <laughs> you yeah. know kind of deal like bring it on like I've seen way. You know, I've seen, you know, you know, your sister in the back of an ambulance and, yeah. you know, it's just as a kid, as a kid, as, a, so, as an adult, it's different. But as a 10 year old, you know, that's hard. That's hard, hard to see. But, yeah. but yeah, you either sink or swim, you know, and, and, and because of, you know, my brothers and my parents and my sister, like we, we were able to float. What kind of roles did you guys play? We just helped out where we could, you know. We always had animals and stuff, so we were, you know, we'd, we'd be out feeding. And then my my sister had a feeding tube, mm. so that it's a it it's a tube that goes in the side of her stomach, and right. so she couldn't really eat. So you just you would make this gruel. Oh wow, it's gross. Okay, pour it in this deal, and it would go straight into her stomach. Wow. So we would take turns doing that. But my parents were young parents. So my were dad, they? Yeah, my dad was, I mean, I remember his 30th birthday. You know? No way. Yeah, yeah. And so, wow. so, you know, he would he would go off and, and rodeo and he'd do Baja trips and shape surfboards. Like he did everything. So yeah. it was like if, you know, we would just run around and chase him around, you know. And I think it was probably the most intense and the hardest for my mom. You know, yeah, because she really was anchored down, and there was a lot of trips where it was just my dad and my brothers. You know, when mom couldn't 
couldn't join, couldn't or, make it. But yeah. my mom, I think, supported him mm. because she wanted us to have fun. Yeah. And we lived on such a neat little place there. I mean, we 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 had you know horses and hogs and chickens and goats and my dad had his little orchard and you know we had this little tiny pasture. One one year he turned it, you know, because he was an operator, so he would turn it into a go kart track, and then <laughs> next, the next year he turned it into a baseball field, and so it was all kind of like my dad created a way where we could do all these things, but then s- still be close to home, like right, yeah. right, right there, you know, and and so. So you loved your childhood. Yeah, I can't complain. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. we we grew up at the base of the Los Padres National Forest. So we thought we grew up on a million acres, yeah. you know, and so you you were able to get a horseback and take off. And you, you, yeah, you, you could never find the end of the trail. I mean, it was it was a it was a really good upbringing, and and um, that's so yeah. Cool. And then you know we got into skateboarding, mm-hmm. but there's no concrete around there. So <laughs> <laughs> my dad built a skateboard ramp for us. No way. So we had, the, there's a the barn. Like a half pipe or a quarter pipe? A half what? pipe. Oh, wow. And it was so funny because he built, we described, so we asked for Christmas one year. We said, can we get plywood for Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, for what? We're going to make a skateboard ramp. So he goes, well, what? He'd describe it to me. You yeah. know, like, yeah. <laughs> what does it look like? So, um, Anyway, Christmas morning, him and his buddy had built the most beautiful skateboard ramp you've ever seen, a half pipe. No way. So, um, and they brought it in on this big truck and surprised us. It blew our mind. But there was no flat bottom. Oh, you're kidding. It's just just. And we're like, Dad, we're so happy. This is amazing. But it's got to have flat bottom. (laughs) And he was so pissed. (laughs) And he's like, I just built this whole thing for you guys. So it wasn't more than a few weeks later. He took out like what I guess would be equivalent of like a Sawzall. Yeah. And he cut right down the middle and he put that flat bottom in and we skated the heck out of that thing. So so awesome. I can't uh, street skate to save my life. But we skated the shit out of that ramp. Like, we we really enjoyed good that. Good for you. That's yeah. epic. That is so good. <laughs> what was Chris Malloy's first big adventure? <laughs> you know, outside the bubble. Oh, jeez. The ones that stick with me is, like, getting to go to King City to watch my dad ride a bronc. And then going to Baja with my dad. That was huge. Yeah. Like, he, like that was just huge. It was just a whole new world. And then we'd go out to Cuyama, and so he had a flatbed, and he built a box in the back of it. So literally a box. Like, you wouldn't even put your dog in it. Right. And me, Keith, and Dan would be in that box. Because <laughs> my mom and my sister and my dad would be in the front. Single cab. Right. And he would put a sleeping bag and a bag of cookies in the box, and then all three of us would climb in, and we'd drive for two hours. And wow. he would just close the close the latch on the box. <laughs> Dark, pitch black. Here's Keith and Dan. I mean, my dad just got tired of us being in the cab of the truck, so he built a little wooden, like it was like a little dog house, but it was for us. And he would throw us in there with a couple like blankets or whatever. Plywood and some some um, cracker jacks, and he called it shut up food. And he would he would drive us a couple hours down the road. We were stoked. 
Yeah, we loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like we were, we weren't like busted or we weren't like yeah. we were like in there. I would like have a pillow and a blanket and it's just be fort. kicking it. Yeah, pretty crazy to think though when we were kids with no seatbelts, we could ride in the back of the truck. Up yeah. the thirty-three, the gnarliest yeah. road. Yeah. But those memories of going out there to Cuyama and and watching them, um, it was a big ranch and and. They'd brand cattle, and, and we'd watch those guys work, and them, like all the old classic cowboys, like that was, to me, I thought that was pretty badass. It was yeah. like being around like Roger Erickson or something, right? you know? Wow. Like, it was just yeah. like, oh, these guys are bulls. Wow. That was pretty neat. Now, when I first sat down with Chris at his ranch, we had some life stuff to catch up on. We hadn't seen each other for a number of years, and in the time since, we'd both lost our fathers men we deeply loved and considered our heroes. When the conversation turned to what we'd be talking about in this interview, Chris begged me not to ask about his dad. The wound, I could tell, was still fresh, and the last thing he wanted to do was break down in front of me. It's an Irish thing, he said. They like to bury stuff. Me? I'm Italian. I get misty watching pet commercials, so I'm okay with it. Nevertheless, I agreed to tread lightly because I can relate. To this day, I told Chris, any John Denver tune will bring me to tears within seconds. Turns out, our dads had similar taste, because apparently we were listening to the same 8-track on family road trips. My wife just laughs because she just looks at me and i am just got tears just streaming. <laughs> well, I'm getting better where I can enjoy those songs now. Yeah. And John Denver, Christmas for Cowboys, all that, like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah. So but funny. now I can kind of enjoy them and get a little glassy-eyed and keep moving along, whereas before a song would come on yeah. and we're driving, I would say I'd be shaking my head to Carla. Just I'd like, be like, no, no, no. no. And she'd be like, yeah. change the station. Oh, my God, that's classic. He grew up in the Topanga Canyon area, yeah. right? Yeah. In the 40s, 50s? Yeah. And, and yep. surfed. Yeah. But he also was on some kind of ranch. Yeah, they were on the old Trujillo land grant. Um, they had a quarter section there, which is a, about 165 acres. And, um, yeah, he, he would, he would train young horses in the morning and, and, and ponies and muck out stalls. And, um, he, of course, you know, I can't ask him anymore cause he's passed, but I know that, you know, there was tan girls on the beach right down the Canyon, <laughs> you know, and that probably drew him down there. And then, yeah. and then you can like, you know, you can keep going with that theory and, and the guys that could ride the nose the best were getting the most tan girls. Right. And so he figured out how to surf and he was a good surfer. He was, yeah. a, he was a good surfer. And so, yeah, he was kind of the original cow, he, cowboy his, surfer. He has brothers too, right? Like how many kids yeah, did there he was grow nine, up with there? Yeah, there was nine in, in, in my dad's family. Are you kidding me? Yeah. My my grandmother came um, over from Ireland on the Lusitania. She what? sailed over here, yeah, through Ellis Island. Then she settled in Kentucky and then she lived to be 99. Wow. Had nine kids. And everybody in the family were hard workers. They, you know, they were hard workers and, and, they, and they, they, they came a long way. And so they, I know your dad drove bulldozers and a lot of the big heavy equipment, right? Sure, yeah. But you had uncles who were like ranchers and cowboys. So you had the whole spectrum of ranch hand type of business. You know, my dad and my uncle Tim, um, they were the most interested in horse and cattle. And, and, um, and my uncle Tim became a full-time cowboy, um, in the, in the sixties, um, and has done that to this day. Where's he located? 
He's in, in a, a lake, a Lakeview, Oregon. Okay. He's been working on a ranch up, up there. there for decades. Yeah. Wow. He wasn't a ranch owner. Mm. He was a working cowboy. Gotcha. So okay. We he bounced around from you know a few different ranches, and so you know whether he was in Galt or Templeton or or Lakeview, like we'd definitely go see him. And I talked to him every week. Oh, still to this day. Oh yeah. How old is he now? Oh. You know, he's pushing 70. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's one of my biggest heroes, yeah. That's so cool. Well, I got to – listen, I run cattle. I have run cattle for a while, but I'm not a cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to have somebody to call. And I, so hey, I dude, call what him, do I do when Uncle this happens? Tim, exactly. <laughs> Uncle Tim, I got bucked off again. <laughs> yeah. You've got 200 cattle on this ranch? No. How many? No, we got 30. Oh, 30. Okay. Yeah. Man, I almost yeah. ran over about four of them on the way up here. <laughs> we, were, we just calved, so there's a bunch of babies. I saw them. They're so yeah. cute, man. Yeah. They're so cute. I was like, hey, do not. I was like opening the gate. I'm like, get away from the gate. <laughs> He's like eyeballing me. By today's standards, Chris Malloy was a latecomer to the full-time surfing thing. The beach, after all, was a decent drive away from Ojai. So summer was really the only time he and his brothers got a chance to hit the coast. But once Keith and Dan showed a love for surfing too, Mike Malloy began dropping them off at the beach before work and leaving them there for the day. Chris would play leader and keep a watchful eye on his brothers. Before long, Mike Malloy was encouraged and he let him camp there. Pretty soon, the days stretched into weeks and the little band of Malloy brothers, backwards equipment and all, became one of Ventura's most feared gang of grommets and they reigned supreme at Emma Wood. So when my sister was born, it was harder for my mom to, you know, take us to the beach. And we really wanted to go to the beach. Right. And, and so my dad had um, a canvas range teepee. And um, he, he fashioned uh, the tent poles out of eucalyptus. And he would take us down to Emmawood, and we'd always get that first sight. And um, he would drop off firewood every evening, and we would be down there for weeks, you know, and the rangers hated us because we were just rabble-rousers. We were such troublemakers. So you basically lived in a, in a like a teepee almost. Yeah. For for the summer. For a big chunk of the summer, yeah. Just, yeah. just you three. And they yeah. would, your parents would just come check in in the evenings? My dad would come every evening and check on us, and we would pretend like everything was all good. <laughs> We'd clean up. And here's something that I probably shouldn't say, but I'll say it. <laughs> <clears throat> when there was other campers, because at the time there would be there were, there wasn't that many other campers. No, not then. For yeah. sure, it was a pretty empty yeah, campground. Yeah, but we would you you so we'd walk down on the beach, and then and then and then army crawl up the cobblestone, and we would pillage people's coolers. <laughs> but we we had it dialed because. <laughs> If you took too much stuff... They would know. Yeah. The, the <laughs> ranger had his eye on us. Like, right. he was not stoked on us. <laughs> so if you just took, a like, a, like one beer and, like, a little chunk of cheese or something... Like, they wouldn't know. They would kind of be scratching their head the next morning, and we'd be watching, because we'd, we'd be like, oh, I hope he doesn't notice, you know? And, oh, um, my God. And that's so classic. We, we would just say... We would call it borrowing from our fellow campers. <laughs> <laughs> that is so epic yeah would you have vibed us if like if we were like little visiting surf guys yeah like would you have been like full heavy locals at emma Wood? yeah 
<laughs> we would have been jerks. <laughs> on your single fins and stuff? I don't think this makes the cut, but we threw a boulder through a guy's windshield one time. <laughs> we did. <laughs> That's going in, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guy was, the guy, the guy shot his board at one of us. And oh, like, wow. It was a whole gang of us kids. <laughs> yeah. And this grown up. Your Irish gang. He's, yeah. he's full grown up. Uh-huh. And he shoots his board at one of the groms. Wow. And then we 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 go ape shit, <laughs> and um, he takes off south. Yeah, which that goes down to co- cobblestones. Right, and there's no that's a dead end. Yeah, so we all sat there under the bridge, and we we're like, he's fucked. <laughs> 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 so you've got like eight kids that are I don't know how we were groms. Yeah, and. Here he comes. <laughs> Who are these other kids? Are they just ragtag? It was the Lennon that... Brothers. Oh, it was geez. it was uh, Mark Brown. It was Vaughn Montgomery. Oh wow! Yeah. And listen, he had shot a board. Yeah. At a freaking across the line, dude. People, you know what's funny is that people right now. Yeah. They don't even know what shooting a board at somebody is. Like, it almost doesn't <laughs> like, what? happen anymore. What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's when somebody snakes you and you lean back and just shoot your board at their at their back as hard yeah, as you, you just can. Fling it with your feet right out. Yeah, yeah. That used to be I the mean, weapon of it's choice. It's not even a thing anymore. I don't think. No, because there's. I mean, leashes kind of killed it. But right. Yeah. So but, anyway, you know, he he had been aggressive towards us kids, and he was a grown up, and he came back, and the the, the melee that ensued, it rained down cobblestones on. His, <laughs> one went right through the windshield. Oh this shouldn't be on there. This no, is dude, bad. You're fine. It's this way, was, way past the, uh, what's it called? The statute for, of limitations. This, <laughs> this was 30 years ago, folks. Like, okay. I, we don't, I, haven't, I haven't partaken in that behavior in, in many years. Everybody, but, yeah. That's how we, that was the times. That's how you, like, we grew up. Right. Like, it was like. You messed it, with the wrong kids, dude. It's okay. You messed with the wrong kids. That's, I love that. That is awesome. I was listening to an interview with Dan and he was just saying, you know, a lot of times you grow up with brothers and they become like these rivals like Bruce and Andy or mm-hmm. whatever. And they have this, mm-hmm. he goes, but you know, when Chris got his driver's license yeah, and we, it was like, we had the keys to the kingdom all of a sudden and sure. he didn't leave me behind. He took us all along for the ride. And, and well, so yeah, that's a, that's an interesting, you know, point. And I think, and I and I, people have said that before, like, man, you guys are just so tight, you know. And you, <laughs> what we were was we were an Irish gang. Yeah. <laughs> and if I could if I could have guys on my on each side of me, I'd probably survive more. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So I mean, yeah, I love my brothers and safety and, and, numbers, and we did man. get yeah we did get along and we do get along very well. But the um. It's not completely altruistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you show up at Silver Strand and, and uh, you know, it's 1989 or whatever. Yeah. And, and there's three of you. Your, your odds are better. Yeah, you, need, you got backup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So you were, you were very much a little jock kid. You were really into baseball when you were young. And I know baseball was another sort of passion of yours sure. because you had family members who were full-on major leaguers. Sure. Yeah, because if, I mean, if you have a family that big, like you know, somebody's going to do good, right? So I had my my uncle Jim was um, won the won a won the World Series with the White Sox, 
And then my, my, my cousin Tim won the World Series with the Reds. Wow. So to be at a Thanksgiving and have two guys in the family walking around with World Series rings was pretty special. You That's know? amazing. Yeah, they were amazing guys. And they both have passed on, but they're amazing guys. So, so you must have... From a surfing perspective, you were a late bloomer, a late comer, right? You yourself. Yeah. So, so yeah, we were about forty minutes from the from the water, and mm-hmm. in the summertime, um, we got to surf quite a bit, you know. But my dad was such a holdout that all the other kids were riding, like, you know, Chris Brown and Jamie George, Pete Rocky. These kids would come down, and they <laughs> would just be so far ahead of us, and we really idolized those guys. That was the cream of the crop, right? It was there. the cream of the yeah, crop, and right. they—I mean—they had wetsuits, yeah. and they had three fins on their surfboard, <laughs> and my dad had us on like single fins, and like, but we looked up to those, in particular, those those guys were just—they were just so inspiring to us, and and um, you know, we've maintained, you know, you know, Chris, of course, we know his past, but but. Um, Jamie and Petey, you know, we, we, we maintain a good relationship to this day they, and they, they mean the world to me because they really inspired us. And so, so yeah, we, we got, when I turned 16, that's when I got to surf. That's right. when I really that's got. That's when you became I, a surfer. I, I got to surf like, and that's when I left baseball and right. that, uh, those other endeavors because I, I knew I wanted to, to, to do that. But you were, Dan and Keith, when I, when I talked to them, they're like, hey, Chris was a really good baseball player. You were varsity as a freshman, and you were a pitcher. And I'm guessing if you were varsity as a freshman, you know, and you had relatives that were in the major leagues, that seemed obtainable to you at so, that time. So the, the fact of the matter is, is I lived in a small town, okay. right? Yeah. So if I had lived in a big city, I wouldn't have been um, varsity um, as a freshman. Okay. You know, we lived in a small town. Um, and there was there was people uh, that came in from from, you know, other, there were some good players for sure, uh-huh. but what happened was for me is so my cousin Timmy Leona, uh-huh. who 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 wore a World Series ring, he taught me a bunch of junk, uh-huh. right? So I had a pretty pretty effective split split finger and a knuckle curve and a good changeup and you know and, and, and but you have a pitcher's body too, dude. You got like you're tall, you got the big butt, like all the things that they the, the scouts look for. Here, here's the thing: is when I chose and I and I sat with my dad and and I said I'm gonna quit baseball mm-hmm. after my sophomore year and I want to surf. That's yeah. what I want to do. Yeah. And the reason I did that is because. Uh, I knew I didn't have what it took to, I, to make it. To the I majors? knew I couldn't make the show. Okay, I, I knew it. Okay. There was. I, I can't even describe exactly why. Okay, but I just. I knew I had the heart, but right. I knew I didn't have the talent. I just ball, but I just didn't have what those other like the guys that I was around. Right, and so my some of my family members were like, man, that was your chance to college. Like mm. that was it, you yeah. know? And, um, so there was tension in the family about the crisp decision. A little bit, yeah. a little bit. I think they're just kind of scratching their heads. Yeah. What's you he know? doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, but I never regret that decision because, or question that decision because I wasn't good enough. I just simply wasn't good enough and I wouldn't have made it. Right. Were yeah. they, were they, were, were the ones, the family members who were kind of questioning it, were they like, uh, crap, he's hanging out with that surfer crowd. They're ruining the You know, because you know, such a great <laughs> big family, and a, and everybody's so, so has always been so good to me. And I don't. Nobody ever said anything like right. outright. Yeah, you know. But I can imagine people are just scratching their heads, and Scuttle there was butt. a little scuttlebutt, you know. Right. And, and um, but my dad said when I when I when I had to talk with him because it was a big deal. You know, yeah. you, you you play ball and That's, you yeah. you commit to it, and you and you you know you've 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 got a you know a, a trajectory, and then. 
to leave something behind to go for something that like is really hard to grasp. Like, yeah. and my dad, I remember that that night. He said, "If you do it, if you do, if, just do something with it." Right. Do something with and it. And were you already thinking pro surfing at that point? Because I mean, you were a late starter to surfing, yet you were surrounded by all these guys who were top surfers. Yeah. So yeah, before just, you start that, though, let me let me ask you. To tell me how you got connected with Channel Islands in the okay. beginning. Yeah. I'll tell you. So our first surfboards were stuff that my dad had just picked up along the way and bits and pieces and stuff like that. And then there's a guy named Mike Mooney out of Pierpont, and he was connected with a guy named Steve Gustafson up in Eurozone, up in yeah. Pismo, right? Right. And they built us a couple boards, and all of a sudden it was our first like custom boards and stuff like that. And then we got serious and like, you know, when you're going as a Grom to Rincon and you're watching Tom Curran, you're going to be wanting to ride a CI. Like, it's just like you know, so um, I'll never forget that day. M- me and my brothers were like, we want to be sponsored by Channel Island Surfboards. And my dad's like, how do you do that? Mm. And we're like, uh, I don't know. Like, you know, yeah, you know, it's like we were so disconnected from the scene, you know? Yeah. And so he put us in the truck. We drove to CI. Really? Just red-shirted the balls off of it. Yeah. Just walked in. And I remember my dad's, uh, he was talking to um, Kim Robinson. He said, how, wow. do I sign, how do I sign these boys up? Right. And Kim was just like <laughs> <laughs> laughing. Who like, are you? Like, we're, there's got three little boys standing in a surf shop going, yeah. I want to I I get these guys on your outfit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I so love it. So Kim was super gracious, and he said, well, listen, we do a once-a-week workout. Oh, yeah, because uh, they were doing all those things. Yeah. Yeah, like we do like these like sort of like – Training things. Yeah, contests. Yeah. 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 And so he said – he kind of giggled, you yeah. know, and he said they can come if they want to. So he That's he had no idea how like serious we he just were. Just opened the door. Yeah. <laughs> so we showed up for I think a few months, like, and and all the other kids were just blowing tail and right. just getting barreled and ripping, and oh here gosh. we are, you know, like trying and trying, and then I'll never forget the day. And yeah. We're I'm coming up the rocks, and um, my dad's talking with Kim Robinson, and he said, "Hey, we can get you guys." boards at cost uh, that's and like, we, oh. we were like oh my god it was so <laughs> it was such a huge day and kim really kim and al and terry yeah like they i can't believe how, how supportive they were of us little kooks from ohi you know and then we um over the years we worked up to the point where we were sweeping shaping bays and i worked in the in the in the store there and um you know, all of a sudden I was getting surfboards for free. It was like, I just can't even believe it. You know, it's so cool. It was so fun. The Malloy brothers were soon wandering up and down the coast, finding their way into a number of surf contests. And it didn't take long for Keith and Dan to find traction in their own age divisions. But Chris was a different story. He was already pushing 200 pounds and was a little behind the eight ball in the contest jersey. Keith and Dan remember that period well. Chris Chris was one of those guys where, you know, he would he would lose in his heat and then go down the beach and get the wave of the day or whatever, mm. you know, type of thing. And, but then Dan and I kind of took a knack to it, you know? And I, I think Chris, too, also, like, he didn't get to surf every day until he was 16. Right. And when he got his license, then we could surf every day. So I was 10 when I started surfing every day, and Keith was... 
um, 14. 14. And so that was a huge thing too. Like, yeah. you know, like if you're not surfing every day until you're 16, like competition is going to be a little tough. After he suffered yet another loss in some random event at Huntington Beach, Chris wandered across the street one day to take a moment to himself. He walked into a surf shop and spotted a video playing above the hard goods section on a screen. It turns out that video and that little walk would change everything. And right as I walked in, it was Derek Ho in a surf movie getting a wave off the second reef and just freaking packing it, like just wow. the sickest. And I just, I'll never forget that moment where I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to do that. You're just like, I, 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 I can do it. I want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to do what I'm doing right now. Right. Like like hopping around on sh- sh- yeah. in shitty waves. And I saw it and I was like, I'm, I'm going to do that. So, you know, I'm so close to my brothers, but it was a time in my life where I needed to go. I needed to go and I needed them. And then they were, they were established. I think Keith had his driver's license at that point. And like, and the thing, I mean, the thing that between the three of us is like, there's you know, two good surfers in our family and I'm not one of them. <laughs> Shut up. So they were really excelling and really finding their stride competing. Like um, NSSAs and that I mean, kind of stuff. I mean, Dan got a call from Derek Hind about the search when he was like 14. Wow. Yeah. So, and I was, I was chugging along just giving it my best, but I wasn't like them. And then, um, and then, I went over and surfed pipe yeah. at like 16 and just was like, it's on. Like, it's, it's on. During that first trip to Hawaii with his cousin, Chris watched Barton Lynch win the 1988 world title during the final of the Billabong Pro at Pipe. As soon as the contest was ended, he was one of the first in the water. And it was pumping. He was sold on Hawaii, and on his way back home from that first trip, was already planning his eventual move there after high school. He spent the next couple of years saving money, chopping wood and picking up extra shifts at the shop. After graduation, he bolted. I told my parents that I had a place to stay <laughs> and lived in my car and then Tamayo Perry let me live at his house for a couple of weeks and then I lived at Jack Johnson's house for a couple of weeks and then I um, rented a walk-in closet <laughs> at Sunset Beach it was sick <laughs> <laughs> I got I could fit a mattress in there I built shelves oh my god I think it was 70 bucks a month wow and Johnny Theodore's house it was Johnny Theodore let's for the audience what did he do for a living what was his deal no well, he was let's just say he was a handyman okay <laughs> <laughs> but then I bounced around. I lived at V-Land. I lived, um, I lived uh, in Mokulaia, and then we. And then the longest period of time we were on Kainui. Chris's North Shore arrival happened to coincide with the rest of the New School generations. They began gelling as a group each season there. It didn't take long before he was rubbing elbows with the whole Motley crew. While they'd grow up to rewrite the book on high-performance surfing, it was actually their exploits in the heavy stuff that got Chris's attention. It all started during one particular session of Himalayas, one of the North Shore's many outer reefs that requires a long 20-minute paddle a half mile out to sea. His memory of that day hasn't faded in the least. 
It was Ross and Shane and Chester, and it was huge. Mm. I'd never been in in the ocean like that. Like mm. it was it was beyond comparison to anything I'd ever witnessed. And I didn't have a board for that kind of surf. And Chester went under the house, and there was an old gun that West Lane had left there. So I had no excuse. <laughs> and we paddled out, and um, I, you know. It, those guys were just absolutely charging and it would be proper Himalayas. I mean, it's the the real deal, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I snagged one and by the time I kicked out, I was like, yep, that's the best feeling I've ever had. Was this like the Ronald Hill house days? Yes. Okay. That was a, yeah, the house the of fame. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, maybe set the stage for that because for some of those yeah. people who maybe the audience doesn't know, I mean, yeah. Ronald, describe the Hill House. Okay, so uh, the Hill House is is down by Laniakea, and um, Senior and Corey were incredibly kind to all us kids, and they let us um, swarm their house every day, and they fed us. They let us keep our boards there. Um, it was just a giant clubhouse. It was just incredible. It was, and we would we would surf all morning, and then we'd watch surf movies, and then we'd surf afternoon, watch surf movies, then we'd come back, and there would always be dinner, and just wa- wildly generous people that I consider family to this day. And so, yeah, there was an exchange of of gear and boards and ideas and 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 a lot of really mean things said to each other. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of alphas it was, in the room. Brutal, right? Yeah. Brock was Brock was the ringleader for sure. Brock and Chesser, yeah. So they would just hold court and like you couldn't you couldn't get away without a wound from from <laughs> either of those a soiree guys. at the at the Hill House. That's why we the, yeah. the House of Pain. That's what we called it. <laughs> So I barely caught the tail end of the Hill House, uh-huh. but it was the polar opposite of what we're experiencing today. Like you could not talk about yourself. You could not claim waves. Like if anybody caught you claiming waves or talking about yourself, you just got heckled like there was no tomorrow. And then there was also an, an element too that I loved that they, those guys charged as hard as you could charge, but they also had a really good time doing it. And they were joking in the lineup. And it was really different than the like, you know, I respect these guys a ton, but the the Ken Bradshaws and the Derek Dorners and stuff where it was like these ultra alpha, like it was a different sort of wow. masculinity. It yeah. was like, yeah, we're going to have a good time and joke around. And like, I didn't realize how special that was until I started surfing big waves with other people other than my brothers and some of the great sessions I had with, with Shane and Kelly and and those guys is that I realized like, oh, some of the other guys are out there and there's like, they're like Navy SEALs and they're like, quoting like no fear quotes and stuff. <laughs> and, and these guys, when we, when I would go surfing with them, they were just cracking jokes and having a blast and, you know, and, and really having a good time. So it was a really, especially being like a grommet and just barely getting to be a part of that. Like it was a really amazing time. And I just, well, another thing about it too, is a lot, a lot of the outer reef days, which were kind of the, the, that was the frontier. Yeah, I mean, like, there was no cameras, there was no life vests, and no one else even knew about it. You know, we'd go into town and eat afterwards, and, um, you know, you have that bond with those guys, kind of like you've been to war with, you know? They don't, no one else gets it. So it was a pretty, secret. Yeah. yeah, it was a pretty special thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's easy to keep a secret if the secret can kill you. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? That's a I great mean, one, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> most guys just didn't want to fuck with it, you know? Like yeah. most guys didn't, but we we were in a place uh, where we were just really enjoying it. It was really it was a really fun little window and and um and there'll be throughout, you know, throughout time, I know I I I would say there'll be waves of you know, you need a crew and there'd be waves of, of guys that come through and they like really step up as a crew. Like the guys are doing at Jaws right now. Like you yeah, see that and, that, they're, and they're pushing each other every day, every right. day, every day. And that and, community is, I mean, that just shows you I mean, we're what, 25 years on from when you guys were doing the outer reefs. And it's, it, there's obviously no shortage of guys who are charging these days. Right. But that's why I think I look at your guys' little era, right? Mm-hmm. That era to me seems very special because I mean... You guys go to Cafe Haleiwa after a morning session on an outer reef, and it's like you guys, it must have felt like being astronauts just coming back from the moon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those days, man, um, and sitting there with with Duncan and after a really good session, like uh, uh, some of the best days of my life, some of the best times of my life, just that's the satisfaction of like, you know, I mean, shit, it takes 20 minutes just to paddle out to those spots, you know, and then you surf your ass off and you get beat down and then you get a good one and then you're with your best friends and then you come into your favorite restaurant, you know, which is this little mm-hmm. cafe and in, in, in Haliva. And, and, um, yeah, those are, those are I really, really cherish that little, that was a great run. Back to the fear question though. Healy was a grom when you moved to the North shore. And I, I just saw a photo of you, tiny little Mark Healy and, and, Manchild Chris Malloy. He was trying to go. He was. He, as I recall that, I remember that picture, and we were paddling out to Phantoms, and he was so tiny, and he was wanting to go out like on like a seven O or something. You know, oh my God. and we were like, so like, he was. I mean, because he was rushing at a very early age. Right? Yeah, he, the, yeah. No, he's a special guy. He's a spe- whatever he does, he does really well. And and um, you know, he's come to the mainland, and we've hung out. Did you talk about how to deal with fear? If I was scared, I wouldn't be doing it. Right. Like, and if I, and if I had a bad feeling maybe on a certain day, like I didn't do it. If Mm -hmm. I, I compare big waves to like, okay, if a four foot wave is fun, like a 20 foot wave is just like that much more fun, Mm -hmm. you know? And if it's not to you, then just don't do it. You know, I don't think that there was like, I never felt scared in those situations. Um, I think that, you know, the guys that like really thrive and you know they're they're just excited you just get so excited like you're like i cannot believe i'm i'm on the right i'm in the right spot and that thing's coming right to me yeah and i got the right board right and i can hold my breath for four minutes and like let's rock and roll like that you know and then the second and again the second that it doesn't feel like that to you then you need to get out of the game like Mm. i see these things about handling fear and (laughs) overcoming fear like i i don't that that sounds, that, you know, I, that sounds scary to me in itself. <laughs> like I won't, if I have to take a clinic to overcome fear, then I'm probably shouldn't be doing it to begin with. And that's my humble opinion. Yeah. You know no, I, mean? I love, I love that. I appreciate that. It was funny. Cause I asked, I asked Dan and Keith, you know, Hey, how did, was the big wave thing for you guys a natural thing? Did Chris, did he, did he have to trick you or whatever? And they both had some funny stories about, don't worry, it'll be super mellow. <laughs> Chris was shamelessly like, 
I remember sessions where he would like trick me into going out on days when it was way, really big from my first, you know, trip to Hawaii ever. Like all of a sudden he's like, he would just be like, yeah, we're going to there's a huge channel at sunset. We're just going to paddle out there. And like Chris was like, sit way in here. And I just got cleaned by a set. And then also one of my scariest sessions of my life, like I was probably... 18 and Chris is like, we're going to go surf this spot and we fucking paddle out to alligators and it's 20 feet. Yeah. You know, it's 20 foot alligators, Yeah, you know, and like only other people out besides me and Chris are Ken Bradshaw and his tow partner. Wow. And we're like just paddling out around, I want to say around the left Mm. to go surf alligators. And I'm just like watching 20 footers. Wow. The crazy thing about you and I, Chris was onto it early and we were, we were Neither one of us got super spooked or didn't go, you know, like, no, like it's kinda, I liked it. I, I mean, I, I think it's strange that all three of us were kind of willing to do it. Right? I mean, I didn't, yeah, let's I, do it. I didn't yeah. like eating shit like Chris and Healy, <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I really, you know, some by far some of the best sessions of my life were those, those outer reef sessions in Himalayas uh, specifically. I sandbagged for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you can, I mean, that was kind of a North Shore tradition with yeah. when you bring people over there. Yeah. It's like uh, everybody did it. But I think what's funny is, you know, they obviously fell in love with it as much as you did. Yeah, they're natural. They're just natural. They were really like they were they were, you know, you're in your 20s and you're mm. surfing for 10 hours a day. So you're re- you're ready. Yeah. M- my my big takeaway, really, if I'm going to look back at that sort of era of, of my surfing life is that. I do think uh, every every man should test himself mm-hmm. and push himself to the absolute limit because then you know where your limit is and in a you I think you surprise yourself and what you accomplish, but you also damn sure are going to be humbled yeah. and and in those like that's a win win right yeah, both of those you, you are push necessary. yourself yeah you accomplish more than you think you could and then inevitably <laughs> you get really humbled. But you know that limit and you push yourself and you push yourself time and time again. And I, I do think those are very, um, they, they inform you. That stuff can relate to a lot of different things in your life, you know? Yep. Um, oh, absolutely. And so, how to deal with it. Right? And how to deal with it. Yeah. So, you know, when I look back at that endeavor and that period of time, I feel like first and foremost, the friends that I gained through that experience and just the sheer unbridled fun. By the mid-90s, the Malloy brothers were all living on the North Shore of Oahu, where they stayed put all winter. They became muses for the gallery of legendary surf photographers who appreciated their talent and their overall aesthetic. After all, they were handsome, fit, color-coordinated, and hard-working. And pretty soon, the Malloys became omnipresent in the pages of surf magazines. And that only accelerated when they became the star team writers for Bob Hurley's brand new apparel line in 1999. Not surprisingly, a good chunk of the surf community began to wonder just who the heck these guys were and where they came from. Today, Chris looks back and laughs at his days in the media spotlight, and he's not alone. Looking back on it now, I think what's fascinating to me is that that's the part that the media really didn't have any idea what was going on. Or they did, but they they didn't cover it. You know what I mean? Right. The Malloys that were in the public eye were these, you know, 
flashy, bright colored Rocky Point guys who were just sure. throwing hack sprays and and sure. and that kind of thing. And sure. what was your take yeah. on, on what, what the public perception of the Malloy brothers was? Yeah, I mean, thank God the internet wasn't really happening <laughs> at that time or we would have been eviscerated, you know. But like yeah, it got to the point where like the you know surfing industry was had gone from a cottage industry to absolutely booming. Yeah. And so all we were trying to do is be like our like be like our heroes, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which any kid's going to do, you mm-hmm. know? And then you're sort of watching the industry change and, and the ethos change and the culture change and you realize one day that you're like a major part of like (laughs) what you don't like about where something's going right and you go holy shit yeah you know and so yeah certainly certainly we we had some of those feelings and you just kind of laugh at yourself it's more just it's not like you guys did anything wrong you if anything you were just too successful at what you just did yeah 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 and uh, maybe some of the color combinations might have been (laughs) color combos were so sick So sick. <laughs> I you told you know. the story about uh, of 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 Rob right on the September sessions trip. He he walks. Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah. He walks out of the thing and he's got like these yellow trunks with a red shirt, and his board has these the exact matching yellow and red. <laughs> and Shane Dorian's like, "Oh, bud, you got full Malloy points there for that." One. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it's as simple as this. If you can't surf that well. You damn sure ma- <laughs> m- m- better make sure that your trunks and your board match, <laughs> and then you have a chance. Yeah, then you got a shot. You know, but but no, I mean we, you know, we we were um, in a place where coming from surfing Emma Wood every day, mm-hmm. you know, we were frothy. And then I met you guys. I went over and hung out at that Rocky House a couple times, and I remember meeting Jeff Johnson for the first time yeah, and Tristler and all these guys <laughs> who you were orbiting around right. these gnarly dudes. Right. And, <laughs> and then like, Chris is like, well, let's go serve pipe at night tonight, like 10 PM. And I'm like, okay, these guys are fucking legit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they used to have at the Hill house there, the house of pain. Yeah. Like, like Dan said, a lot of times just talking shit about each other and calling, yeah. calling, calling each other out. Yeah. And there was like a, an award every Thanksgiving for, photo slut of the year and i think that started because of us (laughs) well the way i look at some of that stuff too is that like good because because i look back on it and i cringe really hard so i look i'm like what the what the fuck were we doing but but the way i look at it is like we were like the polar opposite of of you know like nathan fletcher's and the Bessians and all those people who were literally steeped in surfing culture from the time they were little kids. They right. knew what cool was when they were eight years old. Right. We didn't know what cool was, but we were just psyched grommets having a good time and like, you know, trying stuff out. And it takes a while to figure shit out. We yeah. were so frothy and we were looking around and going, okay, well, this, you know, in terms of like how you make a living doing this, looking around and going, well, it's working for that guy. Yeah. So we're going to work harder. Yeah. We're going to try harder. We're going to surf longer. We're going to, you know, like, and, and that was our mentality because, you know, we, that's just kind of how, how we, how we grew up. It's yeah. Like, no, Dan, Dan was saying the same thing exactly um, about how he's just like, you know, we were just country kids from Ohio. We didn't, we, we didn't know what was cool. We were just trying to figure it out. We were trying to fit in. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so we were just trying thought, to fit in, you know? And, and so for me, I'm like, 
during that time, there was so much talent. You yeah. Know? And I knew my place and I knew I wasn't kind of, you know, like, like when you're contemporaries, when you go surfing with Kelly every day, mm. it's very humbling. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's very humbling. Everybody in that like, generation was humbled. It was very common for, for me to wake up in the morning and go surfing with Shane Dory and Robin Shadow and Kelly Slater. Right. So that's, that's not good for your spirits. Right. If you're trying to be a good surfer. Right. I mean, it's inspiring. If you're trying to justify making a living at pro surfing, right? Y- y- yeah. You're yeah. just, you come in and you're, you know, you're pretty like let down with yourself every day, yeah. you know, and that was like pretty common. Surfing on the North Shore of Oahu has long been considered a life and death endeavor. The seven mile miracle has claimed the lives of many over the years. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, when the boundaries of big wave surfing started being pushed at a higher rate, the community was rocked by a flurry of tragedies, both on the North Shore and abroad, that featured high-profile personalities. While they were deeply painful, those losses didn't slow anybody down. In fact, when Chris looks back at the era now, he's quick to point out that it was quite the contrary. Where were you when you got news of Todd's passing? Uh, um, I was with Art Brewer, and thank God he was there. Um, you know, he was like that father figure that I needed at that moment, you know, and, and uh, Todd had been my roommate for years, you know, and, and my biggest hero. And, and uh, yeah, I just, I just grabbed Uncle Artie and just cried like a baby. Yeah, it was the worst. Jeez. It was the worst. Yeah, it was, it was because... Because Chesser was, uh, he was our hero, so. You would think something like that would change you guys in your big wave trajectory, but it didn't seem to slow you guys down. No, it didn't because we we knew Chesser would want us to be a bunch of pussies. It's like, fucking <laughs> go. Like, that's yeah. like, 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 are you kidding me? Like, this is, we all were like, you know, we were living for that shit. Yeah. And so... And then, and then, you know, Brock was in fighting shape, shape. at that time. And, mm. you know, you just kind of like without, there was no conversations had, there was no, like, should we keep doing this? Like, right. and we all felt at that time, pretty invincible. Like you felt, you know, and that's what was the shock about Chesser was he seemed invincible. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, we all, you kind of just, you kind of, we all looked around it, like kind of just kind of side eyeing and like, are you going to go out? I'm like, mm. Yep. Yeah. You gonna go? Out? Yep, of course we are. Like, you know what I mean? It just yeah. didn't. It didn't. But then it was like the succession of like, you know, when there's Fu and then Donnie Solomon, and right. Chesser, and and um, and yeah. it just started happening too much. Yeah. And we 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 were we were surfing together a, a lot in those waves, and um, it just started happening too much. And then I got, yeah, I got in a. a a car wreck that was bad news during mm. that time. And it was all of a sudden, it was like, whoa, maybe, maybe, maybe you're not invincible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and so you just kind of slowly, I mean, we kept surfing big waves. It just, I think we got, the, I got to, personally, I got to the point where, um, I just didn't have anything to prove anymore. Right. If it was fun, if it felt right, I'd swing and go. If it didn't, I wasn't cause I was, you know, like I wasn't, I wasn't trying to prove anything to anybody. And so slowly over time, it's okay. You know, you watch your friends excel and get, you know, you know, win eddies and all that stuff. And yeah. you're like, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. Like I'm, I'm good where I'm at. 
it seems to me that everybody has their little limit where it's like, hey, you know what, 12 to 15. And then right. there's like a notch yeah. where, where all of a sudden you just feel like you're not in control. Yeah. Right? yeah. And I look at guys, you know, like guys like you and Healy and Brock and Cheese. And it's just like, when does that thing go on? Did it, where was your fear factor? Where did it come in? Did it? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. And uh, um, I, uh, I, I shouldn't be um, lumped in with that crew, but you know, I, I think um, in that window, um, yeah, it was fun till it wasn't fun, you know, and, 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 and during that time, um, it was almost always fun, you know, mm. like it was, it, it was like if, if, how fast was it evolving though? Like that time when you say you went out at, at Himalayas and granted, you know, I, I told you before, like I got to stay with Peter McGonagall my first year on the North Shore and, and, and I remember when he whipped out this 10 2. I was yeah. like, what the hell is that thing? You know? Yeah. And what is it for? And what is it for? <laughs> yeah, and he was just like, out of reefs, dude, you know? And and um that was just so foreign to me. Like I didn't even know they existed. And that was 1985. Right. So you're talking probably early nineties is when you guys yeah. started getting out there. Yeah. And and um and like you said, yeah, guys had been on it, but you guys were really committed to it when those things were breaking and how often how often would they break yeah i mean we we definitely i mean that's what we were that's what that became you know at least for 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 me and my the thing that made me the most excited you mm -hmm. know um because i was i'm not naturally a great paddler so pipe was really hard for me it was it was to get in was just always hard for me but once i got on a 10-0 mm. i could really get traction so yeah. like that was i just it, for my, I, I really felt like I could thrive in in that deep water sort of environment with mm -hmm. with a really really big board, and um, yeah, and so we we basically we you know was, there was just a small crew of Noah Johnson and Browse and yeah there Brian. was a whole crew of of guys that were just frothing and it was such a nice respite from the packed you know, um, line up at pipeline and what was the I, heaviest thing that ever happened to you out there on outer reefs sessions? You wearing leashes and stuff. We usually wore leashes. Okay. Uh, and they, a lot of times you just, if you got caught, caught inside, you just take them off because mm -hmm. you, you hundred percent, they're going to break, you know, right. and then just hope you can find your board in the channel. Mm. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff, you know, I mean, I, I, one, one memory I have of surfing phantoms is, um, the biggest wave I've ever caught, I think, mm -hmm. was at Phantoms. And um, it was just kind of spooky, but, like, the, the guys in the lineup were, um, it was Chester, Donnie, and Fu. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And so I, I look back. And so because of what has transpired, I can keep telling you how big the wave is because there's no, they can't call me out. <laughs> <laughs> They're not here to verify. So it grows every year? It grows every year. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, you Donnie know, Solomon, you know, a lot of people have forgotten about Donnie. Um, and he was a kid from your area. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and it was the story about how he rode his last wave. I think he rode it behind Ross Clark Jones yeah. and was screaming at the top of his lungs, yeah. like just got the wave of his life Yep. and then paddled back out. And um, what just got caught inside, right? At Y Man, got yeah. sucked over. Well, he the falls. got caught inside, and he didn't pitch his board, and he got, and he got, he went over the falls. Yeah, yeah. And you, I mean, if you technically ask yourself what happened, do you think like his board hit him? Like, what did they? I don't know. 
I, I don't know. I think, I think, I think that like, if you look at the footage or the imagery, you know, just that hydraulic impact, I think could have done it, you right. know, and, and, um, just like with all those guys, I, I don't think there's... Every one of them is such a mystery. Like Fu yeah. and then even Todd. It's just such a mystery. Like, okay, I think, what I think, the hell I think, happened? Yeah, I think, and you know, and, and, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything like that, but I think there's an element of like, I think, you know, you, there was no reason to do some extensive, you know, autopsy because they were surfing and then they died. You know, that's it. Yeah. That's it. And they we're all, all heartbroken and it's like something happened. Right. You know, I, I firmly... Like with each one of those cases, um, you know, I, I knew guys that were with them, mm. um, like Cody Graham and and Aaron Lambert and those guys. And right. we, I have theories on all of them, but I I don't want to. Yeah, I'm not trying to go all sixty minutes on you, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just one of these things where you look at what people survive. Right, right. That's sure. what trips me out. I look at what people survive, and that's the part that trips me out about right. foos so much. You know, and I, I've talked to Mike Parsons pretty in depth. You know, he tells me the he's told me the whole story about just yeah. being underwater and thinking he killed Brock, and it was because it was Brock that he hit underwater, but it was actually Fu. Yeah, and um, but he said already he could tell that person was gone. Wow, you know, he was yeah. underwater, and he goes, "Whatever hit me wasn't fighting." Right, you know what I mean? He goes, "It wasn't fighting; it was basically just a dead fish." and right. flopping up against him. He goes, I'm fighting for my life and that thing, whatever it was. And he goes, yeah. I thought it was Brock because Brock and he, you know, he and Brock had taken off together right? and they'd both eaten it. And he's like, oh my God, I just killed Brock Little. And then he comes up and he sees Brock floating and he's like, oh my gosh, he's alive. Thank God. Right. You know, and yeah. he went through this massive roller coaster. Well, what's interesting, that was a time when we were surfing where you would be in big waves and a guy just doesn't show up and you didn't think twice. Mm -hmm. You didn't check on anybody. You yeah. just, you know, like, where'd he go? Yeah. And then that, that started the wave of people checking out for each other. Yeah. And, you know, because, I mean, they didn't find Foo for a long time, you know? Yeah. I know Evan Slater jumped in. Evan and Mike were on the boat and they yeah. were basically heading back towards shore and they spotted Foo's board right. floating. been floating for hours, huh? Yeah, at that hours. Point hours yeah and so i think that again talking about this next generation of kids that are surfing whether it's small waves big waves is i think it's so great that they're looking out for each other yeah accountable for each other i look back at so many times when we were surfing the outer reefs where a guy would get a wave and, and decide to go in mm. and not tell anybody we wouldn't see him for three hours you wouldn't think twice right you know that's which is stupid yeah it's just it's just yeah. stupid you know no, and so sure. um I really appreciate what this generation's doing because we're lucky we didn't have more bad things happen. Mm. But uh, but we had a good, it was fun. Once their careers took off, the Malloy brothers were in perpetual motion year-round, spinning off around the globe in every direction. Chris continued to chase big waves all over the world, including Chile, Ireland, South Africa, and Australia. He scored a cover of Surfing Magazine, pulling into a barrel on the left at Mavericks. And he earned an invite to the Eddy. Meanwhile, Keith and Dan focused a lot of their attention on qualifying for the world tour between adventures. After knocking on the door for years, Keith finally broke through in 2000. And during his rookie season, he and Dan actually ended up in a semifinal heat together at the U.S. Open in Huntington Beach. 
Now, Dan, by then, had already won the OP Junior, and he edged his brother to advance to that final where he lost to Sonny Garcia. He himself was about to qualify as well. He won the World Cup at Sunset Beach in 2002, and with his top seed, looked very much in the driver's seat heading into the next season. But just before the season started, he dislocated his shoulder surfing 20-foot Himalayas by himself. By the time it healed, he realized he was more like his brother Chris than he thought. He didn't actually like contests. I asked Chris about the role he played during Keith and Dan's days in the competitive arena and the push-pull relationship it had with the call to adventure. The U.S. Open, that would have been a fun little... Were you like, you know sort of doing the Dracula cross thing about going down and watching those or were you actually there? A little bit of both. <laughs> You're like, no, I'm not going to go. Yeah. I let them just be, I let them do their thing and I was supportive, but I, I, <clears throat> you weren't waving the towel on the beach surfing. telling them where to sit. No, 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 no. <laughs> Can you imagine? Co- competition? Well, so I was a, a, a failure at competition surfing. And mm-hmm. so I had no right to tell them what to do because they were pretty successful. They won a lot of contests and they kicked ass. They and were so, really good. Yeah. And so I, um, yeah, I didn't want to hex them. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to hex them. And, and, you know, and during that time, it was prior to the Dream Tour. So it was right. like, I had no business being in Huntington Beach or <laughs> wherever bullshit spot they were holding an event i was right. like in new caledonia or right or yeah you were still traveling a lot right then yeah. to, 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 i was like that was like in the absolute middle of the travel you know like i'd be in margaret river or you know tahiti or something so there's just they were i was uh, so proud of them you know they did they did so good and, and i think from where they started to some of the heats that I like heard about, you mm-hmm. know, the guys they were beating and this, I'm just, to this day, I'm just so proud of it. We were never competitive with each other. Right. In terms of surfing. Um, and so when I would get wind that, you know, uh, they had done, done well or won something, you know, I was always like, hell yeah. Like, awesome. That yeah. Part, we're all in the same gang. Like yeah. three of us, you know, we were a gang. That's what Keith said. He goes, you know, it's funny is like a lot of times because there were three of us, you know, one of us was always usually injured. And so, you know, you might, one of us might not get shots for like six or eight months or a year, but nobody knew because there's always a couple other boys getting shots. <laughs> right. so, right. Well, uh, we'd also do shit like, uh, <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent, like uh-huh. it'd be like a big winter swell or something. And then it would be like, 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 okay, you go to Todos. Yeah. I'm going to Mavericks. <laughs> <laughs> you go to Wyoming, you know, whatever. So the Malloys are just covering the bases. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you had to be competitive in your own way. In yeah. its own way, you had to. You that know, is you, hilarious. You, you had to that. be, like, you had to be on it. And yeah. that's what I tell, you know, some of these young guys that, that, that are, that are you know, really, really talented surfers. And they'll, because and I, I, I'm. There's a neat little group of guys around here that surf incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And they ask me, or they're, a lot of times it's their parents. So right. at this juncture in their careers, like, what, what do you suggest? Yeah. And I, and I say, you know, unless they're f- strictly focused on competing, then that's something I can't really give advice on because I wasn't a, a big surf competition person. <laughs> but if, if they want to, you know, go out and charge and, you know, do the deal, I'm like, they need to be on the road all year. Go from Indo mm-hmm. to Chopu to Hawaii 
to West Oz to you know, who, you know, where they need to be on. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I lived on the road for 12 years. Like you I did, you, you, I lived you rarely came home. I lived on the road and, and then, and yeah, so I, I, I mean, t- you lived out of a suit. I mean, granite North shore, Kanui was that home was, base, that, right? Yeah. That, yep. That was home uh, base. And you were pretty much locked in for what? Six months in the winter, four, five? not even that really. Okay. So like three, like four. Okay. And then after that, it was, I mean, it was pretty nonstop for you guys. It was completely nonstop. And it was like, so we would do, so we would do um, Australia every year. And then we would do, I think I did the Mentowise 14 times. That's just crazy. And then we would always try to throw something in that was um, like new, like try something new, like 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 you know New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea, or mm. try to trying to find something new. And then by the end of summer, and then you know we pepper in Chile or Ireland, or mm-hmm. you know we do something like that. And then at the end of summer, we would um, come home, and then we'd work with Almeric and tune up our winter quiver boards and, for the winter. And then we would surf. There's no good waves in, in this area, but we would surf here and um, work with Al on our winter boards and gotcha. then go back to the North Shore. That's quite the thing. And it was funny because Dan, he mentioned, he goes, dude, these kids would be talking about being homesick. And he's like, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> like right. you guys were just on it. Oh, we and, lived on the road. We yeah. lived on the road. Then you'd, you know, and then you'd, you'd throw in like a, like a, you know, we go to France or you know, yeah. Spain. Try to hit Mundaka. You know, it was just. It Is was, it impossible for you to finger, like, hey, what was the best trip of your life, Chris? Like for me, yeah. You know, where's your favorite place to go? Yeah, I've had that question asked so many times, yeah. and and it really, like, you know, I've had incredible runs down to like New Zealand and. Mm-hmm. Chile and um, but really at the end of the day I gotta say Chopu in the very very beginning early days because so we 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 didn't call it Chopu we called it Kumbaya mm. because there was this French cartoon where there was this there's this sort of this this cat and when it got into trouble it would yell its voice was so loud he could deal with villains or anybody coming in. He'd yell kumbaya uh-huh. like so loud on the TV and like the villain would fall over okay. or robber. And that's what that wave was to us. Like it was so just like, like oh. yeah, sonically just, you know, and so we call yeah. it, we call it kumbaya. And so we would stay with Raymana at Papara and we would um, sleep on his floor and that was um, Hank and... Briley and Noah Johnson and uh, the Irons brothers were there pretty early. Um, Kahea Hart, of course. Um, bunch of guys. And, talking and, like mid '90s now or late. Man, 90s. I'm so date, bad yeah. with dates, but okay. y- yeah, this is mid '90s. Pre contest, like oh yeah, a, like, oh yeah. Like, no, no, there's never yeah. been a contest there yet. Yeah. And there was a, and there was we would we would um, get up early mm-hmm. with Rimana. And then Manoa Jolet, um, he lived on the other side of the creek, mm. and we would go to the little bakery, get a uh, baguette, and then make sandwiches, and then we would drive out there, and it was just a village. It was just a little village, yeah. you know? And we would 
and there was nobody there. And you guys were just getting slotted. We were losing our minds because <laughs> because imagine everybody now has seen Chopu. Right. It's, at that, at that it, point, no. It, it, I mean, nobody it, really even realized you, what it was. Can you yeah. so try to put yourself in this position, right. right? So you watch one of those things come in. Yeah. You've been surfing pipe all winter, which is at that point the heaviest wave in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, like you know, guys, oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, and you're seeing something that's like three times heavier, and you're with. You know, Noah Johnson and Sean Briley, guys that are like, at the time, I mean, kind of some of the gnarliest guys out there. For sure. And nobody's going. Wow. And you're, you know, and so in terms of like my favorite sessions is like sneaking into some of those ones. Yeah. At a surf spot that really was not even known. No, for sure. I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, anyway, it, 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 it. In, in the... I remember, because here's the funny thing, right? Um, I think I went to Chopu in 98, and it's still... The the shot heard around the world really was that Corey Lopez spread that yep. one year. I think it was 99. Yep. That was when it was like, what the, you know? Oh, my God. That... I remember I was at... <laughs> I So I had put in a lot of miles at Chopu. Right. At, at that, that point. point. Yeah. And I was at Transworld Surf Magazine for some weird reason. Uh-huh. And the photo editor at the time, who I can't recall. Is it Terrace, maybe, or Steve Sherman? Maybe Pete Terrace or one of those guys. Sherman, yeah, yeah, or something. And uh, he's at the light board. Is that called light board? Yeah, light table. Light table. And he's just looking through stuff, and I'm talking to somebody else, and I just hear him go, Oh my God. (laughs) And I walk over, and I went, Oh my God. Like that one was. yeah, that one changed. And then Laird's Wave. Laird's was the same thing because I, I was on the light table when that thing came through. Yeah. And it's exactly, that's why we put Oh My God on the cover. It's a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was just like, oh my God. And it just... was like, it was wonderful and heartbreaking to me all at once because we had had this little secret and we were developing it. We were getting better right. and we were getting bigger waves and we were figuring out how to make it work. Right. And, you know, the the mountains behind us and and, and the... And the birds coming out of the hills and, you know, the, the, you know, the Chinese, French, Tahitian gals, you know, yeah. in the village and like the memories, I'll just never, ever forget it. So when I saw those waves and I saw that there was a contest there, <laughs> yeah, it was a little heartbreaking yeah. and I'm happy for all those guys, but it was like our little, our little run was, yeah. I, I recognized that it was going to be different from then. I'm just stoked to see all these kids ripping and, and yeah. you know, and, 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 you know, my image of like, you know, you take not and Peterson or you take Dora or you take you know, all these great surf travelers and like, they watch things change so heavily, you know, yeah. and, and, and we're watching things change and I'm complicit in, in, in that, in some of that change, mm-hmm. he- heavily complicit. So yeah. I have to accept that. Yeah, I, we all are. And, you know, kids are surfing better. They're getting more barreled and, and, um, I'm happy for them. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was talking to a buddy last week, and you know, the the industry has blown up, and it's not the industry that you and I grew up with. And I was he he's like devastated by. It. He's like, "Well, we got to get it back." I'm like, "Dude, those days are over. It's okay." Right. Like, high five. Yeah. We had a good run. Right. I go surfing. It's still there. Though. There's more guys in the water than ever before, and the kids have more choices. Yeah on what to ride and how to ride than ever before. Well, the thing that kills me, if we're going to talk about that, is that 
um, and I look back very fondly on all of it. Um, but the one thing that breaks my heart is I was riding the wrong boards <laughs> the whole fucking time. <laughs> I was riding. I'm like, you know, I'm like yeah. riding around 200 pounds. Oops. Yeah. I'm yeah. right. I'm right around 200 pounds, and I was trying to ride what Kelly and Rob were riding oh. because they were the best surfers that I was around. I know, yeah. And if I had got myself on some foam, yeah, man, it been... would have changed everything. And I mean, luckily, you might have won some heats, man. Maybe I don't know if that would have. I would have just had more fun. I yeah, think. but no, for sure. Well, that was 90 percent of the population. Well, and the thing that kills me too is that I grew up riding um, my dad's longboards. Mm. and single fins so i knew the value of foam right and yeah. width yeah and thickness right. and i knew what a rail was um and so but it's to, like one of those you know you guys were pretty progressive in the air game i mean you, I, I remember you, you used to throw your tail around a lot you were yeah for a big guy you know <laughs> you were very uh I, I, acrobatic i enjoyed that yeah it was really fun and and um those little tiny super thin super rockered out boards if you could get them if you could get them on plane, yeah, then you could you could blow tail. Well, they know? worked on the North Shore because you didn't need to gather they worked, speed. Yeah, they worked on the North Shore and they worked they the, they really worked in Indo. Yeah. Um. But the thing for me is I I mentioned before, but I'm not a naturally good paddler. Mm. So until I learned like the Tahitian poke, mm-hmm. just boom 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 boom. Yeah. Then I I got I got better, but so you take a two hundred pound guy and you put him on a, a surfboard that's that thin yeah. and that rockered out. It's not a good combo. No, I it's have, not. Yeah. And that's another reason, like I mentioned before as well, is I had. So at the time, a nine six was max. Like right. oh, well, yeah. nobody was riding anything other than that. Like uh, there was a few old classic guys that had bigger boards, but you couldn't even, it was hard to get a blank that you right. could make a, anything. Right. But I, I had Jeff Bushman make me a 10 mm. that was like four inches thick. And once I could, I mean, I was on plane just paddling and yeah. that thing was just, just a, and so, um, but yeah, I do regret riding the board. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and let me just be clear. Yeah. This yeah. needs to be in it. Yeah. Al was making absolutely beautiful surfboards. Right. I was just ordering the wrong no, for sure. deal. And him and Alan Gibbons and um, Malcolm and all those guys were making absolutely beautiful surfboards. It's just that I was ordering the wrong thing because I was chasing what Kelly and Rob and those guys were riding. I was managing a surf shop a lot of those years when you guys were doing that and shaping boards. And I was kind of on the parmenter train of like, hey... um, these boards don't work for most people. And the funny thing is, is like we get these guys, they walk in the shop. These are like Cal Poly kids. And, and they're just like, no, I, I want what Kelly's riding. Right. And, you know, you're not going to talk them out of a sale. You're like, hey, they're right over right. there. Right. <laughs> Which one do you want? Well, and then other kids would come in and they'd be like, I don't understand why this isn't going to work. And you go, okay, well, let me tell you why. And, right. and you have this long, and they're willing to be open to it and like, and it was like being a therapist, like talking right. to people. <laughs> well, you know, I worked at CI some summers yeah. early on. Yeah. And when Terry Merrick realized that I was dyslexic and I couldn't run a cash <laughs> register or fold T-shirts, <laughs> I couldn't fold. I was such a moron. She was so sweet. She was like, Chris, you just work by the surfboard rack. Oh, that's cool. So I can relate to talking to guys. And they yeah. all come in and they want to tell you all about their surfing right. life. And they want to tell you how they charge and what they do, and yep. you just quietly listen like a therapist, yep. and then and then you wait till they're done, and then you say, uh, 
I think this would work for you, you know, and then they can go back and forth and back and forth. I get that. You yeah. know I, mean? I think one thing that people, cause you know, now we have this really vitriolic atmosphere, um, on the internet, uh, um, about surfing, yeah. right? People yeah. all like, like to say mean things to other other yeah the the shit talking stuff yeah one thing that alex cops a a dear friend of mine yeah yeah yeah. said to me he goes you know all these people say all this stuff on the internet but you before you start spraying mean stuff in the comments you should have to a prerequisite is that you should have to see yourself surf once yeah (laughs) (laughs) because so many of these guys are like blah 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 it's like dude have you ever even seen yourself surf because it's not pretty go look in the mirror bro Now, Chris Malloy and his brothers came of age during the rise of the surf video, an era defined largely by Taylor Steele's movies and the Momentum Generation. Chris, Keith, and Dan were regulars in Taylor's releases, and as the market exploded for video, others as well. Virtually all of them followed the same exact recipe. High action, tight frame, quick cuts, edited to punk music. And while performance surfing got a big boost during that era, the VHS nearly killed the classic surf movie. That didn't sit well with Chris. So in 1998, he partnered up with his cousin Emmett Malloy and Jack Johnson to remind people what was missing. The result was Thicker Than Water, a film that not only won Surfer Magazine's Movie of the Year, but it revived the genre. Now, if you ask Keith and Dan if they were surprised by Chris's effort, they'd tell you not at all because they'd been watching Chris Flex's creative muscle at home for years. Chris had always had this interest in documenting. It didn't matter if it was surfing or what, you know, he liked to have that camera on his shoulder documenting things. So he'd always had very artistic, like he could throw down a sketch with an ink marker and, and just kind of blow you away. So the, I wasn't that surprised because I knew Chris really loved working on creative projects like that. It's almost like, you know, he dove into that like he dove into moving to the North Shore. It was like, he just was like, I think I can do this. And he pulled together Jack and Emmett. And I think that they, uh, everybody worked their butts off. And and, um, he's a good kind of team builder too, you know? Yeah. And like being Mm -hmm. in front of the camera, I think we all got a, a, a pretty good idea how that worked. And it made it easy to step on the other side of the camera, you know? Yeah. And I think Chris always, you know, from the time we were little kids and he got a VHS camera, like he just loved projects. He just loved to be working on a project at all times and he would have the VHS and he would be editing from VHS to VHS and making little videos. And I remember that very clearly, like he loved projects and that's that's the way I, I am too these days. Like um, if there's a project of some kind involved, it's just kind of fun. You have like an objective. There's many times when it's fun to just go out and surf, but it's also fun to be like, Hey, let's go out to that beach break where nobody is and like, see if you can get some weird thing, you know? And that's just kind of fun. It like makes it, it's, it makes it not just about like, you know, did I freaking do a good lipper? (laughs) It's like, Oh, we went out and we made this thing and it's fun, you know? Yeah. So I think that the project side of it and those objectives has always been just kind of like a fun part of it for our family. Do you feel like you've always been a creative type? I mean, did was the creative thing in you mm-hmm. uh, from the very get-go? I mean, 
I never, I mean, I barely got <laughs> through high school, so I don't, I never studied in, in any of the arts. Um, in fact, my high school art teacher told me I should figure something else out. So <laughs> when I showed her my portfolio, really? I kind of liked drawing. Yeah, I was super into it. <laughs> and, and, uh, so that was pretty, um, so don't be discouraged. Yeah. I was just like, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, I definitely had something in me. Like I would, like when those VHS cameras came out, you know, mm. like I used the heck out of that and like would make like little nerdy claymation things. And like, I always, I always really enjoyed cinema. Yeah. Um, and I was also, so I was a horrible student in high school, but I was a voracious reader. So right. once I, once they, once I got to read what I wanted to read, mm. I got really into, um, uh, some of the masters of photography, like uh, I loved, like Henry Cartier-Bresson or Sebastian Salgado or hmm. Dorothea Lange. Like these people, I just started collecting their work wow. and what they could do with imagery, with no intention of be being involved in film. Yeah, um, but I just, it just, it just really rang out to me and and um, fascinated me. Yeah, and then at the same time, I'm around. Art Brewer, Jeff Devine, Hornbaker, and Chang, and, and I'm watching these guys work every day. Some of the best lensmen in the business, yeah. Like, so I'm watching this this craft, and so it's it's like it was, if I hadn't gotten hurt in 97, I probably would have never got into film, but unbeknownst to myself was like educating myself in, in composing imagery and telling stories through, mm -hmm. through photography. Tell me how, where the inspiration and the sort of gumption and the whole thicker than water thing, how long were you stewing on that thing before you were like, I'm going to do this? Yeah, I think some of this, like the surf world and the surf industry as it was booming and blowing up, I was getting a little bit just like disheartened by it. And I was really starting to lean into like, like I said, like the, some of my heroes like Craig Stesick and Art Brewer and, and then in 97, I, I, uh, one evening at Pipeline, it was, a, you know, second reef evening and, and I, um, went over the falls mm. as I quite often did <laughs> <laughs> and, um, went over the falls and then went over again. The second time around, I blew everything in my right knee er, and my, and my left knee and tore the top off my right knee, hit my head really bad. It was, the sun had, it was just going down and, and, um, it was the first wave of like a five wave set. So the next four waves just ripped my knee out of the socket again and again and again and again. Jeez. So I, Dave Cantrell found me in the channel and, um, brought me up to Jack Johnson's house. And I sat there, watched the end of the day. Um, Jack's dad brought me a beer and casually just said, so, uh, what are you going to do now? <laughs> and it, and because it was like yeah. you know jack's dad was is was is always such a legend legend and he was always kind of skeptical of us kids chasing this thing you right. know and he was he there was he was like my dad it was there was so much he wasn't saying like what are you gonna get for dinner he's like what are you gonna do with your life now right your knees the big question your knees fucked yeah it yeah. was the big question yeah so anyway um jack was in europe at the time and over the course of the next couple of weeks, I felt as though um, I had I had been involved, you know, in front of the camera in so many surf films that didn't 
really represent the experience that I had had. Because um, the 90s were very just like punk rock, quick edits. Yeah, super tight frames. Tight frame. You yeah. Know, the longest clip yeah. was three seconds. And, and yeah. they were useful for what they were built to be. Right. And the filmmakers that made those were awesome. And, mm-hmm. they, and they pushed surfing. And it was all... But it just... Was that progression push? Yeah, 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 it was great. Um, and I had grown up watching Albie Falzon's films mm-hmm. and Widzig's films and Greeno's films and and Severson, and the list goes on and on. And um, I, I, I I thought to myself, you know what? I've got fifty grand that I had saved up over that you know that period of time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a surf movie, and I'm going to do it in sixteen millimeter. Except for one thing, I don't know how to fucking. <laughs> run a camera. So I'm like, who do I know that right. can run a camera? So Jack Johnson had just gotten out of film school right. in Santa Barbara. So I call his mom, Patty, and I'm like, where's Jack? She's like, he's in Europe. So uh, I, I got somehow got in touch with him. There was, yeah. was pre-email, pre-cell phone, but we got, and I said, Jack, you want to make a surf movie? Yeah. That's hilarious. And, and uh, we, and, and he's like, yeah, let's do it. And so um, we, I think we had this album, vinyl, mm. and it was that old flute player, uh, Herbie Mann, huh. like jazz. And I remember sitting at Jack's house and like we were, we put it on and we were like, we got to make a surf movie like that album. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were off to the races. And That's that, so yeah, cool. we, we went around for a couple of years and filmed and my cousin Emmett came in and he was a runner at a film house and so he knew how to edit a little bit and, mm. and so we um when you say he was a runner at a film house what did that mean at that well point? he was actually started as that and then he was starting to be an editor he mm. was actually start- a runner means like you're just like taking just like coffee orders t- and tape. whatever yeah. Yeah, t- yeah i mean at that time yeah. beta, beta max tapes yeah. that are as big as your arm yeah and then he was editing he was starting to edit um, you know? Yeah, movie trailers. Yeah, I remember you when you introduced me to Emmett first time. I, I think I met him. He, that's exactly what. He, yeah. He and, so he was really he was doing great with that. He was really coming up, working really hard doing yeah. that. And like they um, were g- getting a reputation for it. As, as yeah, yeah. And so it was kind of like, okay, I, I suckered Jack into this project. Now Emmett, are you keen? And we would, you know, we would trade surfboards and wetsuits for Telecine and and. Um, so Emmett was like, what, I'm going to drop everything and I'm going to go? Because how, how many trips did you do for that movie? Oh, shoot. So um, we did, so it was like, you know, Hawaii, one, well, we were living in Hawaii anyway, so that was that. And then there was the Andaman Islands, there was Ireland, um, Australia. Oh, gosh, it's harder. it's so long so ago. Many. Yeah. yeah, and so and it was just bits and pieces of a couple winters on the North shore over the course of a couple of years and stuff. So, um, and were you bootstrapping it from the beginning? How did a yeah. you know, production? Yeah. I mean, like, if I'm going to get into it, um, I had the initial push, you know, like I'd saved up money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went to Bob and I asked him for a big loan. Yeah. It was a loan though. It oh, wasn't, I didn't ask okay. him for money. Okay. So it was like, I'll pay you back. And I did. Wow. And I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud that, that, um, that's awesome. Yeah. It was, I mean, a 16 millimeter film, you know, yeah. hour long, 45 minute long film. That's not and Bob processing. Didn't even think twice. He said, here you go. Wow. And, and, um, and I paid him back every penny. And so 
as far as going around premiering the whole thing, when did you realize like, oh, this thing's, it's working? You, you know, one of the very first signs was um, my brother Dan, he, I, he got to see it, one of the first guys to see it. Because me and, me and Jack, uh, Jack and Emmett, we were burnt at the end of it. You're just like, I don't know what we just made. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, and um, I showed it to my brother Dan and he's like, I think you did it. <laughs> really? Yeah, he was just like... And he would tell you if he did not. Yeah, and then was. I took it to Pi. Do you know him from Huntington Surfing Yeah, Sport? Aaron Pi. Aaron Pi. Yeah. So I take it to him, and he's so gracious, so sweet, so nice. Yeah. And um, I hope I get my numbers right, but I t it's VHS, right? So it's yeah. VHS. Yeah. Like, I, there's no DVDs yet. Right. So I show it to him, and I'm kind of just, like, nervous and kind of sweaty, and I'm hoping that he'll buy 10 copies. Yeah. And he ordered 2,500 copies Holy right then and Lord. there. And that's where I went, like, wow, you know. <laughs> you can and then, of course, there was a mess up, and I don't even think we were able to deliver all, all the, you know, right. copies. But when, when, when Aaron Pye jumped on it, he just went, like, yep. And that felt really good. Wow. You know? Yeah. As That's a, really cool. Yeah, that was pretty neat. And then, and then just, we, um, we showed the movie for one of the first times at the Key Club in Hollywood. I don't mm. know why the hell I would pick that spot, but we did. Uh-huh. And Dan went around, he Xeroxed copies, just old school style, and went around to telephone poles all around, along the coast. And it was just an absolute packed house. And... Yeah, there was something in the air where you're yeah. like, oh, this is... And then to watch it, you know, win the Surfer Pole right. Film of the Year was just such a pleasure and such an honor. And, and I, I really thought about, you know, what I grew up... Like when McGilvery came to town yeah. and would show a film yeah. and there was like beer bottles rolling down the oh, aisle yeah. and it was our one time a year yeah. to like see that stuff and you'd emulate that like what was going on in the surfing world from what you saw that night for the rest of the year mm. and I I just hold that so dear and that felt like it was kind of fading away mm. so the biggest pleasure for me was to emulate that and so we went up and down the coast yeah and we'd rent auditoriums and gyms and and to have like you know two three four five hundred frothing surfers cheering it's kind of like re you know it's like you kind of recreate your your childhood and yeah. that's what it kind of felt like for me like that's my biggest enjoyment in in, in working in film is getting a big group of people together to yeah. like to sit there and witness and and digest a message or a some right. semblance of stoke and it's especially now you yeah. know right now because people are consuming uh stuff with their phone in their hand and you yeah. know that's all well and good but like to have a, a, that convergence of people and then afterwards there's conversation and shared experience I miss that. Yeah, yeah. yeah i miss that how much for you personally was that a turning point in terms of going you know i really like this being a director and sort of chasing that road a little bit mm -hmm. um was that something did you know right away you want to do another one because you talked about being pretty burnt yeah I think that it ended up being so much fun. It's like, I didn't think I was going to get to surf again, but I, re I got a great doctor and then the rehab for the knee with Dr. G, who yeah. just saved my life, mm. legend. Um, so I recovered so I could surf again. And I had, and I still had, I was still sponsored to surf, but the draw to, 
to do it again was so strong. I just like had to, like, I wanted to keep going. Cause I'm like, wow, I kind of, yeah, kind of figured I kind of can do this now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? And so simultaneously I, I was surfing and, and doing the film work. Yeah. And, um, and so it was really fun to, to dive in and, and continue on. And then at that time, you know, I didn't have Jack anymore because he, he, he had, his career just went bananas. Yeah, he and um, you know that was so fun to watch, and it was an exciting time. Yeah, yeah, and so well, um, you guys were first people to hear him actually sing. That I love that story about you guys were basically on a boat because Jack used to only just play, right? Yeah. Well, he had, I think he'd played vocals in his his uh, little punk band, his school. little college band, right? Um, and and then um, he had over the course of filming Thicker Than Water, he had been playing and, and writing some really cool music. And for me, it was funny because, and I had a little mini disc and so we we're recording yeah. stuff. And you know, when you, you hear, you hear your friend at a campfire and you're like, wow, you're really good, <laughs> you know, yeah. but then, yeah. but then you're like, you know, the next day you're like, cool. That was fun. That was a campfire jam. Like yeah, yeah. I was like, with, with Jack, I was like, I think you're actually really really good like i think you know and so and and so and then so to watch it go where it went was so fun and so i'm just so happy and proud of how how that went and, and he's done such a great you guys job. were such pivotal role players in his thing i mean obviously emmett is emmett still his manager to this day i right? think so yeah. yeah and um and yeah that was that was just well, we were I wasn't pivotal in anything. I was just a bystander. You know, I was just yeah, <laughs> was but there I, to watch it happen. And, and it was it was it's funny because when uh, I did a profile on Jack that you know during that period, right when it was all going down, and he was literally, you know, him and Emmett. This was after September sessions. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it was after the September sessions trip, mm -hmm. and you know he was sitting on all that footage for a year before he started editing it because. It was just that whole winter, it was like starting to take off for him. Yeah, I remember the day, that first day with G-Love, sitting in that room at, at uh, Topanga and um, watching G-Love light up because we were a huge fan of his, you uh -huh. know, and then also, you know, handing the music off to Ben Harper's camp and, and oh, yeah. J.P. Plunier, who, yeah. who, who is a huge mentor of mine creatively. Um, you know, you, when you, when you hand them that tape, you think like, they're going to say like, keep chipping away, kid, you know, yeah. but when they're like, get him in the studio tomorrow. Right. It was pretty exciting. That's stuff. when you know something's yeah. going on. Yeah. So, but really like, it, you know, I feel like I was, you know, on, on Jack's coattails cause he was, he was, he was looking through the lens. He was writing that music and I was able to, to help put our team in the right place um, during a, a really, a really um, fun time. By 2004, Chris Malloy was getting deeper into his creative projects. But after his sponsor, Hurley, was sold to Nike in 2002, he and his brothers were beginning to feel a bit out of sync with the new environment. It was nothing personal. Hurley was just clearly going one direction while the Malloys were headed in another. Luckily, Chris was able to orchestrate a deal with Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia. At the time, the brand had tried several times to crack into the surf market unsuccessfully. Chris did his due diligence, learned from those who preceded him, and approached them with a new plan. 
The ride they took off on there lasted for 16 years before they hit the sand. Chris, Keith, and Dan had their hands in everything, from clothing design and retail displays to marketing messages and movies. The simplicity and cleanliness they brought to the surf category was actually borrowed by the rest of the brand, so their fingerprints remain on everything. Patagonia was doing about 200 million in sales when the Malloys arrived. Today, they're at a billion, with a decent chunk coming from surf retail. I think that the surf community was ready for a different kind of product mm-hmm. and a different, a little bit of a different kind of mindset. And so it was more of, it wasn't that I changed it, it was that things were changing and I was able to observe that, um, that it was, it was time. And so with my brothers and, and John Rapp, Jeff Johnson, Jeff McFetridge, um, and, and that whole crew, and there's more names that I'm sure I'm leaving out. Mm. Um, we put together, you know, an offering, um, and, and it, and it did, it, 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 it gained some traction and it's, and it's doing pretty well. And I'm, and I'm, I'm proud of that. You know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, you know, after 16 years, I'm not working direct with Patagonia anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm very proud of, of the fact that that fish fork flies proudly. You move the needle for those guys. In a big way. I did my best. It, it, it's something where um, I, I like the story you told. There was a, a photo that you used for inspiration. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, talk about that and like what, what you were trying to pull off. Yeah. So I think that whenever you set out on an endeavor like that, you have to have your true north, your, your, your north star. Your, you, know, you, you have to have a, a compass, right, of where you're going. Mm-hmm. When a team gets together and, and they run around willy-nilly, they're inevitably going to lose their, 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 their way, right? So I always like to start out with like one single image or one single sentence. Mm-hmm. And then you base, you base everything off of that. And... Um, when you get to those crossroads and you start to argue or you start to get confused, you pull that out. You say, well, this is, this is why we're here. Yeah. And so for we're us, stuck. it was a portrait of, of, um, that Art Brewer took um, of Whitey Harrison and his whole family. So you've got grandmas, fathers, sons, daughters. It's, it's three or four generations sitting out in front of their land grant Adobe. Yeah. Um, which is about a mile down the road from Surfer Magazine where they used to be. It's incredible. <laughs> I, I, yeah. And JP. JP Van Sway is a grommet in that photo. Yeah. 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 It's just it's hilarious. Just, it gives me goosebumps to this day. Yeah. Seeing that picture. Yeah. yeah I know exactly and, that photo. And, um, and so we based, we based everything off of that image. Um, just the simplicity and the utilitarian aspect of what everybody was wearing. Yeah. And also a bit of like everybody had a little bit of a unique, there might, was a straw hat or a yeah. striped shirt. Like it's, it's, yeah. it just feels good. And then also the other thing that we based that original line off of is um, Bob McTavish and Yvonne Chouinard around 68. Mm. Both, both of them were changing what they did climbing and surfing mm. through making pitons through making surfboards the things that they were making were changing everything um and they both attest to the fact that the motivation was to take the cleanest line yeah so that clean line 
and the simplicity, functionality. You use that phrase, the cleanest line. The cleanest right? line. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's amazing because that became such a mantra. Yeah, it's become like something that they use. Yeah, which is which is good. And and I think um, for us and for for me, it was just getting back to the basics. It's just like simple cotton, simple canvas, simple denim. Um, because they know. were doing a bunch of bright, weird, like at the time, yeah. astronauty stuff. Astron, exactly. <laughs> yeah, not as Coppice always says. Like some of the stuff looked like you're getting ready to go fight aliens. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and that's okay. There's a time and place for that. And if that right. if that's your aesthetic, that's that's rad. My right. my, I grew up, you know, going to the thrift stores in Ventura and getting like old flannels and going right. to the army surplus store. But you know what? I think what's impressive. My buddy, the shop that I used to manage up on the Central Coast, I was asking my buddy last week. He just goes, hey, Patagonia is number two in our store. Mm -hmm. You know, like that if you would have told me that when I was working there in, yeah. the, in the 90s, I would have just laughed you off the bill. You know, what oh, I mean? like laughed we you were we were so me and my brothers were so, you know, um, connected to. Hurley, yeah, and it seemed like it would go on forever. And when we left, I had people laughing me out of the building, like, like <laughs> yeah. in terms of, right. like guys saying, like, You're oh, you, where? you work for a frisbee company, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. are you guys playing hacky sack at work? <laughs> and I mean, I got so laughed at, and so that was actually, you know, one of my motivations for, yeah, really giving it my all and trying to make it work. Um, but I, I, I gotta say, it was like, there were so many people involved in that you know that success so i i was just one one person out of many many now the other opportunity obviously that came from that was your uh the open door for you to tell some even different stories sure. in film you know, Fisherman's Son, some of the others. What what were what are you most proud of when you look back on those projects? Yeah. Um, Yvonne gave me the opportunity over the course of, you know, 15, 16 years to go out and tell some stories, you know, tell some stories. 180 South, a Fisherman's Son, Unbroken Ground. Um, we got to do a couple dozen, you know, mm. and, and um, what a great experience to go out there. Because in my life, I had surfed and surfed and surfed and surfed and surfed right. and filmed surfing, 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 yeah, surfing, yeah. surfing. And I had watched the degradation of certain areas over the period of, you know. Yeah, especially as you travel around the world and you see you come back. And like, yeah, 14 yeah. times to the mentalize, I saw like subsistence farmer fishermen um, in certain villages over the course of 14 years, which is a very, very short time, mm. turn into Cokes and Winston's and... TV and mm -hmm. Top Ramen. Yeah. Whereas, and I could recognize these same people. Yeah. So it's not it's not my place to judge, but I can I can have an opinion, mm -hmm. and and so it it got my mind reeling, got my mind thinking, and so my job I think as a documentary filmmaker wasn't to pass judgment, it wasn't to tell people how to think, it was to document as realistically as I could, what was occurring. Mm. And I and I always made a, a very um, clear point not to demonize the agrarians that were involved, whether it was a farmer or a rancher, because mm -hmm. I do believe 
in my mind that they are a very important part of the, of the environment. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, I thank Yvonne for letting me uh, tell those stories and mm -hmm. get those out there to, yeah. to people. And, and people may agree with, with, with that. Or, or they may not. That's okay. But right. That's what I experienced. Well, the, I think another point of documentaries is a conversation starter, right? Sure. Um, yeah. Just awareness of what this topic is, and you know that's what's so fascinating about all these little these little battlefronts and things that are happening yeah. all over the world and yeah. that people would never be aware of. You're right, and you know what? I <laughs> so when we'd finish these these little films, we would take them. Uh, up and down the coast, sometimes the, the East Coast as well. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, um, inevitably, there'd be a Q&A. Mm. And when people would be really complimentary, and I'd be kind of bummed out. I, want, yeah. I love when somebody would come out, just veins out of their foreheads, Bulging. and just like, I love that de public debate. It yeah. really, and I learned stuff. I, like, yeah. I, I, I was wrong plenty of times. I also like shut some motherfuckers down when they were yeah. like, you know, like <laughs> ill-informed and like I, and it was like, it was again, going back to the surf movie days, it was a right. group of, it was a group of human beings mm -hmm. conversing and exchanging ideas. Right. And we have, we had the right to speak and yeah. give our opinions yeah. and it was frustrating at times. It was embarrassing at times, mm. but at the end of the day, we all learned from it. So I loved that. Your films, you know, were so highly regarded it's natural. The natural progression is all of a sudden the commercial people start coming to you. Sure. You started a company long ago. I don't know what year it was, but the Farm League, which mm -hmm. is sort of a commercial agency. Yep. Because that's a whole other side journey. Yeah. So my partner, is his name's Tim Lynch, and yeah. he came along way back in the day, and he was a, a producer, and he saw me like literally at a typewriter like writing out requests to like Capitol Records and <laughs> just saw me like, he's like, okay, you're not, this isn't the part you're good at. <laughs> and he said, he said, um, him, and he was, he was, he you were was, like, what, begging for a tune for a movie or something? Oh, so my, the first time we did a surf movie, I, 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 I typed out requests to, for every song. Yeah. Except for the ones that Jack did. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. I, and nobody got back to me. So I was like, oh, they must be cool with this then. <laughs> <laughs> like we, I mean, I shouldn't even be saying this, but like yes. thicker than water, the music just got cleared like four weeks ago. No way. Well, I'm just, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm joking. But Tim Lynch just worked tirelessly for us, with us for years Yeah. Um, on the surf movies. And really, I mean, put in a th thousands of hours and never, I mean, yeah. that's the thing is people don't realize like we didn't make money off any of those movies. Like, right. We, it, it, they were all passion projects. Each one was enough to pay for the next one. Gotcha. Okay. If that, you right. know. So Tim, um, meanwhile, he's doing, you know, big music videos, mm -hmm. you know, and he's doing film and he's doing some commercial work. Did he work with Emmett too? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And he was always like, hey, man, you could do this stuff. Like, you could yeah. do this stuff. And I had no interest. I was like, I'm fine. I don't, I have no, I don't, no, no, yeah. no. And then, um, yeah, just randomly, you know, like this, this job came up, you know, and it was like a, you know, a big job. Mm -hmm. And like, can I we would, name the company or? It was Ford, Ford, okay, yeah. Ford Motor Company. Yeah. They're out of Detroit. Yep. Detroit. <laughs> Did you have to deal with Team Detroit? Oh, yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, I was in the corner office. <laughs> yeah, um, and I did it almost like jokingly, like like did the treatment, and mm-hmm. and it was like an eleven day shoot. Yeah, and um, Tim's like, motherfucker, you got the you got the gig because I was up against you know you bid yeah. for those things, you don't just get them. Oh yeah, for sure, yeah. And um, I had so much fun. Like mm. it was eleven days of like just all over the country and like really great um creative partners and they were happy with the work and it was it was a national campaign and and all we were doing is the stuff that we already do right you know so there's like six seven year run where we got to do a bunch of fun stuff got to you know work for ram and i got to do coors and chevy and all these neat big american brands and and um that was a pay the bills type of thing that was working out pretty well I was already for something that I wasn't was, a full time gig, right? I mean, yeah, you were yeah, still Patagonia. I, you were, yeah, yeah. It was, it, you know, what for me as somebody who didn't, my biggest takeaway from that period of time was I didn't get to go to film school, mm-hmm. so I was working with seventy person crews, eighty person crews, Jeez, and huge. all these guys and women, yeah, so highly talented, yeah. And I, it taught me, like, sure, the paycheck was great. That's fine. Mm-hmm. That, that's great. But that, that comes and goes. Yeah. I blew all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the education I got and, right. and also the watching these people work ethic. And mm. it taught me so much about the process, you know. And also this, imagine this. So there's 80 people. Your director never went to film school. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Mm-hmm. And you're still going to kick ass for him. Yeah. Where they, these people are all schooled in the business. And you have this guy that doesn't know to say action. I just keep saying, go, <laughs> go. <laughs> there, and like 80 people looking and being like, what this, this uh, fucking guy? Yeah, 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 totally. Dude, you're not speaking and I'm, the language. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. And, and um, so I really appreciate like those folks for um, putting up with me and, and like guiding me in, mm. you yeah. know, and I would always show up to set <laughs> and they would think I was on the grip truck. <laughs> <laughs> so they'd be like, Who somebody would at first would be like, you're late <laughs> trucks over there. <laughs> and I would, I would always, I would, I'd go along with it and I'd yeah. go over the, the grip truck and the guys would be like, are you in the elect? Where? What? What? Are you in the art department? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I did. And at the end, and then people would be like, "Oh my god!" And I would just crack up. That is so. Funny. I definitely like when you wear a tucked-in Wrangler shirt right. with red wings on. Like, yeah. you don't fit the part the of part a, of director. Yeah, high-powered director. I still, I still refuse to ever call myself a director. I'm not a director. I just, I just am good at nudging shit along. It's funny though because you have this aesthetic eye for detail and. You're a creative person who knows what you like, and there's something to that that, you know, that's why you're successful. I I look at the commercial work you've done, the film work you've done, and it's amazing to watch. And what's interesting, I think every project comes along, you you scale up or down for the budget, right, Mm -hmm. as far as the crew you got. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a nice little meritocracy in that regard, isn't it? Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certain people that I have got have had the opportunity to work with over the years. And if a job comes up and you win that job um, and they're available and you can get them, like my shoulders just rest. I go, I'm in good hands. I just feel good. Like these people are, 
A, they're good to be around, they're nice people, they're creative, they're highly intelligent, mechanically inclined. I can just relax. And then there's other times um, where you get a certain person that's you know very important to the to the crew that can um, make you uneasy. Mm. So it's all about just getting those those you know th that team together. And I'm su super team oriented. And you know, um, is it safe to say that you know surf adventures and the mishaps and shit that goes wrong on a surf trip? trained you well for that type of job yeah for mm -hmm. sure for sure like yes and like i've worked for different folks where they're, they're like panicking yeah like they're like panicking and like shaking and sweating and this isn't on the crew this is more of like the you know the the, the, the clients yeah stuff. the client side and like i i walked out and i'm like motherfucker we're all breathing right now <laughs> Like I've been in situations where no, like the person's not breathing. Right. Like they're like they're going to die. So the fact that you wanted teal and it's fucking turquoise. Yeah, like... Fucking, I don't give a. Like I do, I do give a, I do care about detail. Right. But it doesn't. It's you know. So yeah. As fast as the Malloys seemed to explode on a surfing scene, their exit from the public eye seemed almost as rapid. While much of it was work-related, Chris especially has been in digital hiding for a good 10 years. Sure, he checks social media here and there, but he's not partaking in it. His biggest connection to his old momentum buddies, in fact, is their beloved, closely guarded text thread, where they continue to give each other shit, House of Pain style. Chris, Keith, and Dan are all husbands and fathers today, and they all have some acreage and animals at home. Call it the circle of life. I couldn't leave, though, without asking Chris about his seemingly strategic retreat from the public eye. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't, we didn't talk about the fact that it's like, you guys, the Malloy brothers collectively, how much of you guys pulling away from the spotlight was a very intentional move? And, you know, how often are you seeing your old buddies? Because it's like, you know, these, yeah. I know a lot of people are like, where are they? How are they doing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, where's Chris Malloy? Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I think for me, it was 100% intentional um, to, you know, that little self-imposed exile was just, needed for me at the time because I guess personally I had watched some of the older surfers um, just kind of spiral and mm -hmm. kind of become bitter and I always thought to myself like well you just got to surf for 15 years and get paid to do it you should be on cloud nine and yet you're bitter and this is this is me when I'm when I'm a, when I was young and watching some of the old guys just get so so disillusioned with the world. And so I promised myself I wasn't going to be like that, you know? And it's like, take this incredible opportunity and now go do something with, with it, you know? And, and if you love surfing, like you say you do, you can keep surfing. You can keep your community. You can keep all those memories, but like, there's nothing, nothing worse than watching like an old surfer or an old boxer, Mm. keep going when they should when they shouldn't mm. i mean generally it's more graphic with old boxers but 
old surfers, it's more pathetic, Mm -hmm. you know, like don't try to keep doing that thing because you did it, you did it okay when you were, when you were 25. Mm -hmm. So right around, you know, 30 in my, in my, in my, you know, early thirties, like I was, I was just like, this is, this is, I'm, I'm excited to go do new stuff. Time to kick out. Try something new. Yeah. And, yeah. and by the way, keep getting really barreled. But yeah. I just don't have to do it. You know, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, I'm right. not trying to, you know, I'm just doing, I'm just going out and surfing. So right. that's kind of, that's kind of my mindset. And um, I'm super happy for the guys that can, you know, like there's freaks like Kelly and Shane mm. that just like into their mid forties were still, but they were, they were so relevant in what they were doing. Mm. Like yeah. Kelly and Shane, like are just freaks yeah like, but those are anomalies and i right i was i knew i wasn't that mm. so to well, go and you gave up a lot of your privacy during this peak of your career and so in some in some yeah. ways it's like hey you deserve to get it back yeah you fought pretty hard to get your privacy well it, you know and, and it's it's like all i'm doing now like uh, sometimes people will come up to the ranch here and and to uh, and they'll and they'll be like whoa big change you know like you, yeah. you're doing this now i'm like no 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 this is how I grew up. Yeah. And then I went to the North Shore for 20 years and was like surf dude. Yeah. I'm just, I just, I'm just back to like how I, how I grew up. Yeah. That was like the, the rancher disrupted basically. Yeah, years. exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting. Yeah. So it's, and this is how I'm most comfortable, but, um, gosh, I love the North Shore and I miss all, all my friends over there and, and, you know, I see the change there, but it's it's still it's still a great great place and and um do you think you'll always have to be in california or near the coast or do you could you see yourself being a mountain man at some point you know idaho or montana i could yeah yeah i could i could i i would have so many old surfers do that right sun valley yeah whatever i could do um i would have to have water though yeah rivers like lakes like i can't be moving can't, water yeah i have to have mountains and water mm-hmm. like i could not be in you know south dakota or like flat on the plains yeah i couldn't do that no. and i've been there and it's like god bless the folks that that do that yeah. and i couldn't do it i need yeah. mountains and i need running water right so yeah. same I'm the same I, I doubt that i'll ever move away from the ocean um but if i could fish hunt and mm-hmm. You know, had places to go. You know, see what's around the corner type of deal, and a bunch of wildlife. You know, like I could probably do it. You know, you know, I told you when I got here, I used to drive down that stretch of the 101 once a week back in the 90s, and I used to just stare at these hills in wanderlust amazement, just want to run off into them. Mm. And you're living here. I'm looking around. I don't even see a structure, right? <laughs> it's just so beautiful. You've got these beautiful children, beautiful wife, but this is a lot of hard work as well. Where do you go from here? Where does Chris Malloy, what's next for you? First of all, thanks for the nice words. You're, you're just seeing all the fun part. You're seeing the fun part. <laughs> well, I know there's a lot of work. I could tell I there's a lot say, of work. I my, mean, my, 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 I'm lucky to have my, my wife because she puts up with me. Mm. Um and my kids are hardworking, they're good kids. But um, yeah, for me, I don't know. I don't know what's next, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, I'd, I've never really worried about that. What I love to do in between projects is I write a lot mm. and, I, and I draw a lot. Mm. So I do a lot of thumbnails and, and I just compile like 
you know, I, in in my drawer over there, I've got like 50 pages of hand handwritten notes, and they can be completely, you know, not make any sense, or there might be some some semblance of something that makes sense that might turn into something else, and mm. I might go back and you know take this paragraph and stick it into something or this idea and so I'm kind of in that stage right now really I'm, I'm just writing and drawing and you know I'm not one of these people that has to be doing a big project all the time like I'm right now my project this year was putting up 500 bales of oat hay for my yeah. cattle that's that was enough for me that was to me it's it, you know that's what Massive. made me feel like I was you know doing what I needed to be doing um I have a couple stories in me though that I'm that I'm working on, that I'm excited to chip away at. I mean, the life of a doc, a documentary filmmaker is just chipping away, and I think that that's young filmmakers need to understand that. Like you, you have to be ready to chip and yeah. chip and chip. There's a film that um, we're getting close to releasing soon um, called By Hand. Mm. It's about it's it was directed by Kellen Keane. Um, oh yeah. I worked with Kellen once. Yeah. And yeah. He helped me on a Subaru thing. Really good guy. Yeah, you introduced me to him, I think. Really good guy. Yeah. And he's he he documented the Higginbotham brothers who paddled the um, whole coast from Alaska to Mexico over the course of six months. Yeah. And it's a really neat story and it includes their family. And yeah. and um so we've and we have Jocko Willink. Um, is narrating it. Oh, wow. Kelly Slater does interviews. Jimmy Chin does interviews. Um, wow, that's uh, so Jamie, cool. Jamie Mitchell does interviews. Um, and these two brothers, I, I just, it's, it's... The guys who paddled? Yeah. Yeah. Ryan that's Casey, such an amazing story. It's inhuman. If you've paddled a surfboard, <laughs> yeah. like, if you've paddled a surfboard, right? you, it will blow your mind. So that's been really fun, and we've been working on that. When's that coming out? Uh, well, speaking of chipping away, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they've premiered it to rave reviews um, in like, like film festivals. Oh, okay. So it's on the circuit. Yeah. Um, but we have some, some really um, fun stuff that we're just kind of working in on with the edit. And so ASAP. Well, Chris, this has honestly been a blast, and I could sit here all night with you. Chris, thank you so much. You're always, always welcome here. It's so fun to bullshit with you and, <laughs> and um, you know, and, and yarn, and I don't get to talk story like, like this very often. So I really appreciate um, you coming up, and, and um, please, let's do it again. Absolutely, man. Thank you very much. Well, I want to thank you guys all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that one. Now, if this was your first show and you enjoyed it, please consider giving me a five-star review on iTunes or your platform of choice because it helps me bring you more of these. I also want to hear your feedback, so please write a review. You can also find me at People Who Surf Show on Instagram, where I offer little tidbits on surf history, surfers, and surf culture. It's a fun thing. Go check it. Big thanks to John Meek for the music and sound design on this episode. You can check him out at johnmeekmusic.com. And a big thank you as well to Todd Hannigan and Jack Johnson for the additional melodies. All right, great new episodes ahead. Be well, and I'll see you soon. 